You can kick your fancy ales, you can take them by the flagon, but the only food for the raven tooth comes from the green dragon. Welcome to episode 19 of the Green Dragon Podcast, your podcast about the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit strategic battle game. Today's episode is all about the AMIR competition. We've been running an AMIR competition for quite a while now, and we're so excited to review every single entrant and then come up with a winner. With me, I have Matt. Hello. And we have Kylie later on in the episode, scattered throughout, so she'll pop in and give her thoughts occasionally as well. Now, first of all, we'll start with our month in Middle Earth, very quickly go through what we've been doing. Let's just say both of us have been playing a hell of a lot of Rohan scenarios. Isn't that right, Matt? That is right. A lot of Rohan scenarios. So many scenarios, and it's been so much fun. There's been some great scenarios. There's been some not-so-great scenarios. But we've had a ball doing it. We've had a laugh along the way. And it's funny, some of the scenarios that we disappointed the most were the ones we enjoyed the most just from the silliness. So, yeah, there was, there was some fun there. Now, in terms of painting, I managed to finish off... I actually redid an orc catapult that I had for my ongoing orc project, and I was really happy with it. I managed to, to put some red blood handprints on it, and it looks really nice. So I'll throw some photos of that up on our on our Facebook page as part of the episode. I've also managed to finish off a couple orcs, but I've, I've put the orcs aside for a little bit. I did something special. I've managed to get a, a friend to cast me up one of my shades. So I got got a shade, absolutely destroyed the model in the mold, put the resin in. I was inspired by the old Best of White Dwarf with the clear Balrog. So I got a clear shade. And then I painted my clear shade, of course, because that's what I do with a clear shade. I paint it. But the way I painted it was something different. I painted all the extremities. So the heads and some of the arms were pointed out in like human colors. And then it faded to this like off clear green for the rest of it. And I was really happy with the result for that. So ended myself up with a clear shade, which I much preferred to my original gray shade with white highlights. So very happy with that. And finally, I've been working on Master of Middle Earth, my Rivendell. So I'm about halfway through, probably about 62% through my Rivendell. I'm going to get this done this month and I'm super excited about those. Matt, what have you been doing? I've been up to a couple of things. I've been looking at my month muster warband and going, oh no, I've got exams, I've got assignments. How am I going to get this done? So I've ordered in some models, some watches of Karna. I've based a few uh, Haradrim and I'm planning on getting that off the ground as soon as possible. Unfortunately, study is taking priority at the moment, but uh, it may come down to an early November finish. Hopefully get that done. Aside from that, Kylie and Tiernan and I headed over to Tiernan's place and we managed to get together for a scenario known as Reprisals, which is from the Shadow in the East source book. It has dwarves fighting against Easterlings. The dwarves are trying to get revenge and get back some of the some artifacts that have been stolen from them from an Easterling temple, as well as raising the temple to the ground. So really sticking it up, those darn Easterlings. So... That was a really enjoyable scenario. I actually was recording it, so I was taking pictures, I was writing down what was happening, and Kylie and Tin were actually playing. It was a really interesting scenario. It really came down to the wire with uh, Kylie managing to break the Eastlings quite quickly. Tin managed to take out a dwarf captain, and the dwarves eventually broke and were trying to get away, and there's not many Eastlings left, and they're just running from the other side of the board, but they have to pass courage tests, and it actually came down to a tiny little mistake by Tiernan. He had the opportunity to pin Dane in place and prevent his standfast, but he didn't take it. He instead charged some dwarf warriors. So instead of all of the dwarf warriors carrying the artifacts that uh, Kylie needed to get off the board to win the game, 
Uh, Dane just got his stand fast. They charged into these couple of cataphracts that had managed to pass all their courage tests. Killed them, got off the board, no problem. So it was a dwarf victory. I've actually written up a full battle report, and you can find it on our Facebook page. So uh, and, and I spent quite a bit of time on it too, so I hope you enjoy it. It's fantastic. I really <laughs> enjoyed that because I'm, I'm normally all in for scenarios, but I couldn't make this one, and I just love this battle report. It's fantastic. Well done, Matt. I really appreciate you putting that up because it's the first battle report we've had in a long time on the Facebook page as well. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to do too. I know I was getting a bit in the way of Tin and Kylie at times, but it, it was still enjoyable, and, and they had a good game out of it, and I had a lot of fun recording it, so yeah. Now, we've also got one announcement about an upcoming tournament, which we promised to get out there. So Matt's got the details here, and he's going to announce it now. Okay, so the TO, Dylan Asmus, has asked me to give a shout-out for this tournament. I actually went up here two years ago. So it's on the Sunshine Coast at the University of the Sunshine Coast, in the E-block even, very specific. Which is a really sunny block, I've heard. <laughs> Must be, yes. Uh, it's... Th- Uh, run by the Second Legion Gaming Club, and it's on the 22nd of November. So if you're up there on the Sunshine Coast or, you know, in the surrounding areas, I'm actually going to be in Brisbane around that time, so I'm hoping to go there myself and perhaps uh, regain my title, which I I actually won in 2013. I'll represent Matt. Good on you. (laughs) I'll be there, Uh, hopefully. Uh, The cost is $20, and there's actually some... Uh, there's some special rules here. You can find this players pack. I think we'll upload it. We'll have it on our Facebook page or perhaps on the Lord of the Rings uh, Australia community page. And there's actually some really cool prizes, which I'll just go into Amazing prize. I was really impressed with this because oftentimes you get like a certificate for a prize or a pat on the back or something like this. And this has gone way above that. It's much more than the certificate or the pat on the back. These are really nice. We've got new inbox Metal Knights of Minas Tirith. You don't see them very often. Oh, they're great models. We've got Metal Eastling Cataphracts. I love them. I love them. The Barrow Downs box set. Barrow Downs box set. I want to go for that. that. I've already got one, but I love that scenario so much. It's a scenario in a box, except you need the Hobbits, but everyone's got the Hobbits there. Yeah, and and as well as that, they've also got the uh, what they call the Balan's Tomb Scenic Base, which I'm assuming is the one that came with the uh, Battle Games in Middle Earth. And that's a fantastic piece as well. That's great. Great prizes. Oh, that makes me think I should probably paint mine up. That might be in uh, next month's... uh, What's it called? Episode. I don't know. Next month's episode. It'll be there. Good on you, Matt. Now, I've got one further announcement, which is actually not Lord of the Rings related. So if you're not interested in this, please tune out for about 20 seconds. So what I'm doing... Now, I've got a dirty secret here, and I'm going to let everyone know about it. I actually occasionally play other games sometimes. Sometimes I cheat on my Lord of the Rings. Sometimes I cheat on my Hobbit, and I go and I play something else. I've been playing a game called Malifaux, which is not actually French. It sounds like it is, but it is an American game, a skirmish game that I've played off and on for the last few years. But one of the groups that I've played with has just got into it. Their their game that they played got sacrificed. Their, their Warhammer that they knew was gone. It's changed to a different Warhammer, which I actually quite like, but they don't. So they wanted to play Malifaux, and I've started playing Malifaux, and we've started a podcast, because I've got some podcasting experience, they've got podcasting experience, they used to be on the Dwellers Below Warhammer cast quite a bit, I think they still are, so we've started, four of us, the Red Jokers, a faux show, so if you want to listen to that, it's got a little bit of language and a little bit of adult content, a bit more so than the Green Dragon, but it's a good fun show, so I mentioned that one, but go have a listen to it if you wish. It's got me on it talking about Malifaux. I might drop some Rings content everywhere just to every once in a while just to annoy the others, but it should be a good fun show. On to the scenarios.
return to Edoras. Aemer and Prince Imrahil, along with what's left of their armies, ride back to Edoras to commence the funeral procession of King Theoden. As they return, they find that Edoras has been overrun by bandits and stragglers of Saruman's once great empire. Together, they fight what's left of the invaders and raise the flag of Rohan once again over the Golden Hall. Ooh, so this one's by Marty, and it's got a bit of a Scary the Shire feel already. The Aemir and Imrahil go out partying after the feet of Sauron come back and... And once again, someone left the gate open and all the bad guys came in and, and wrecked all their houses and stuff. They really should get some security. I like these ideas of this uh, aftermath of the entire war. I, I love when these happen. As I've, as we've seen in the Scouring of the Shire, it's fantastic. And it's what you have to do for Fourth Age, isn't it? Because it is, Because the yeah. good's in control all of a sudden, but there's going to be spot fires all over the place. And there's going to be these instances where they have to, to go out and and defend their lands and, and come back and take what's there. So, good premise so far. So, we'll go ahead and uh, give the participants here. On the good side, the Victors of Middle-Earth. This company comprises of Aemer, Gamling, and Imrahil, and the surviving warriors of their armies. So, we have Aemer Knight of the Pelennor with arm and horse, so big, beefy Aemer. Yep, good excuse to use the big, beefy one. Sure is. Four Rohan Outriders with their horses, thank goodness. We have six Riders of Rohan, not given any equipment there, so just basic Riders. Yep, we assume that they don't have the spears. Then we have Gamling, Captain of Rohan, with the Royal Standard of Rohan. Very I'm a massive fan of this model, and I think it gets underused now. It's such a fantastic Rohan iconic model, so I'm super happy to see it in this scenario. Yeah, I haven't painted it up myself yet, but it is the next one if I ever go back to Rohan. That is go paint sure. it up. It is an amazing model. So That'll good. be the first one I do. So he is leading four Rohan Royal Guards who are also mounted. Yeah, so good Rohan contingent. I like those numbers. They're all reasonable and they, they seem a good representation of a mounted force. Yeah, I think the Royal Guards came one per blister as well too. So Yeah, and the Outriders the did as well. Foot ones. Uh, foot ones are three per blister. Three, so. The, the, the mounted. Look, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost some money for this, but a lot of people have the Rohan lying around and we asked for an AMS scenario, so I've got no problem with these participants. Yeah, fair enough. So, Prince Imrahil of Dol Amroth with Armoured Horse and Lance, always a nasty one, and he's leading 10 Knights of Dol Amroth also with Armoured Horses and Lances. Yeah, now what this means is most of the good force is going to end up getting re-rolls across the board, because the Dol Amroth models have Imrahil near them, and then the Rohan and the Dol Amroth have Gamling near them, it's pretty much going to be re-rolls all over the place, and you've got the bonus of when Aemir, and Aemir only, uses up his might, he can get a recharge off Gamling, which would be pretty handy in this scenario, I imagine. Heaps of punch, fair bit of shooting, yeah, it's a, it's looking like a tough side. It's for, a pretty uh, scary looking horse force. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll move on to Evil. So in Evil, the Lost Pride of Isengard is the name of these participants. This group of stragglers represents the survivors of the fall of Isengard, Urukai that escaped Fangorn Forest, and the men who harbour deep hatred of the Rohirrim after their defeat at Helm's Deep. So we get a bit of a cross-section of what's left of Isengard here. We start with an Urukai shaman who has armour. Fair enough. Eight Urukai warriors with shield and four Urukai warriors with crossbow. In the second warband, we have an Isengard Orc Captain with shield, one Isengard Troll, one Isengard Orc Warrior with a banner, five Isengard Orc Warriors with two-handed weapons, interestingly, and five Isengard Orc Warriors with spear. And lastly, we have some Dunlendings. We have a Dunlending Chieftain who has his two-handed weapon, 
We have eight Dunlending Warriors with Shield and four Dunlending Warriors with Bows. Yeah, it's an interesting mix of participants. First thing I've noticed is that the captains, the chieftains and captains and themselves, they've avoided the Fight 5 ones off the bat, which I think is intentional because it means that the Fight 4 almost across the board with the good side is able to to at least have a draw or hold advantage. I think Marty was probably worried a bit about like an Isengard captain shielding against a bunch of Rohan and holding them off. So there's definitely not there. Also, it feels like a bit of a points match one with a mixture of warriors where each warband doesn't have a, an even representation of the warriors. You've got most of your spears with your orcs. You've got most of your shields with your Dunlin warriors and your Urukai. And you've got the orc group as a bit of a support group. Yeah, it absolutely looks laid out like a points match uh, army, the way it's been written down, so for sure. Yep. Which is not a disadvantage at all. It's something something unique. What it does mean is it's probably not going to be set out in the way you purchase it, so it's probably relying on you having the army all ready to go, which is fine as well. So I don't mind these participants. They look like nice and themey, and they don't look ridiculous either. Yeah, and on the other hand, if you did actually want to play this as a points match with whatever participants, it'd be quite easy to do. So. Yeah, a good start for, a, I don't know what it is, maybe 500 points, maybe a little bit less, but it'd be a good start to an army, this this group. Yeah. The Isengard troll is interesting. Oh, and you'll get to, we'll get to that soon. Yeah. He is very interesting. Yes. So the objectives for this scenario, we have a victory for good, is if good have more models in base contact with the Golden Hall than evil after two turns. Yeah, so after the second turn, we're guessing that, which it would be impossible to do it earlier with the way that we do the setup soon. But the evil have to hold off and make sure that the good don't get that. I don't know how good can get there before that. Yeah, fair enough. So on, on the evil side, they just have to kill Aemer. Yeah. Simple as that. Yep, so easy. Always like easy objectives or simple objectives. not necessarily easy. And for a draw... If evil have more models in base contact with the Golden Hall than good after 10 turns, it will be a draw. So basically this means it's a 10-turn game because if the good models haven't broken through by then, game over. The only exception is if the evil models have none left or they have no one touching the hall, then the game continues. But it's basically, for want of a better term, it's a 10-turn game. Just to pick at a loophole here, if uh, after 10 turns both armies had the same amount of models touching the hall, I assume you would just call that a draw. Yeah, I I would do that, but technically it's it's not at the moment. It's you keep going. Yeah, so that's a bit of a. So no, I think I think if you played it as written, what you'd do is after ten turns, you'd check the conditions each turn, and if it met the condition of either the good model having more models in base contact, or the evil side having more models in base contact, there would be a win either way. The draw, yeah, if yeah, the draw on. happens, yeah. if if the evil side gets that, if. Amy goes down, it's a, a win to the evil side, and yeah. So it's it's not... not may have been intentional. It may have been intentional, yeah. and it's not a bad conditions for it. It's it's probably, probably could do with a little bit of cleanup on the riding, but other than that, it's all good. Okay, so the special rules for good. We have the fatigue of war. The good armies have travelled long and far after their victory at the Black Gate. Every second turn, the good warriors and heroes may only move half their normal movement. This is a very interesting one. Something like this usually rings alarm bells for me because, once again, you're changing the core mechanics of the game and it's a bit fiddly to work out which turn is it. Is it every turn, every second turn? Okay, so every even turn, you've got to keep track of the turns. Evil turns, the good models are slow. And in terms of a story, I'm not so sure. Maybe if you just lowered their movement across the board would be a better way of doing it. 
but it's it's an interesting way of doing it because what it means is good who gets a turn where they can sprint forward and then they have to consolidate sprint forward consolidate so it means evil can be a bit bit lax on the second turns it seems like one of those things that it seems simple when you write it down but it's probably going to have far-reaching consequences that perhaps you didn't think about yeah quite possibly and it it's just it seems strange to suddenly get a burst of energy and then lose it straight away as well so yeah good idea though because it's something i haven't seen before okay so they have another special rule called renewed hope although they suffered many casualties the armies of good find renewed hope in knowing that the darkness that loomed over their lands is no more the victors of middle earth may re-roll failed courage tests yeah, so good can reroll fail courage test. This is especially useful for charging the Isengard troll, and that's about its only use. For break test, you'd get that as well, which is pretty handy. But it's courage. I actually really like this one instead of the auto pass courage. A lot of the scenarios you get auto pass courage. I think the reroll is incredibly powerful, but it also means evil's got a hope as well, and the terror actually does do some work. Yeah, true. I always like it when there is at least some chance of something happening. You don't want to be giving up. At that stage where everything is just passing straight away. Yeah, you have to think carefully before making something a guarantee. Okay, so on the evil side, we have one special rule. The uncertainty of survival, already broken and barely able to band together, the stragglers of Isengard will take any opportunity to ensure their lives remain intact. Evil warriors are not affected by any friendly heroes stand fast. Now, this is another tricky one. Basically, it means that evil is going to break and break impressively essentially so once once it gets to break test they're going to start running away it's interesting they've got a shaman as well because the shaman's effect would still work for the Isengard the Uruks, the Uruks yeah. so the Uruks would be able to stay around in theory for a bit longer as long as the shaman's there but the heroes what it means if your heroes is you're not so fussed about them for break tests so you just get them stuck in throw them in to combat see if they can do some kills and then don't worry about them you don't need them for the courage test yeah there's no late game there for them so. No, no, there's no reason to hold on. There might, might say. So that's that's an interesting rule as well. Um, it's got it's got consequences, but I think that one's not too bad. So already, I, I'm thinking. All right, we'll go we'll go with the starting positions, and then I'll say my thoughts as someone who actually did not play this scenario. Just what I'm thinking. Off oh, the, absolutely. Off, let, off let's let's go it. through the map and let's go through the starting positions. Okay, so starting positions. All three good warbands are to deploy six inches away from the gates of Edoras. Now, we have a little map here, I think, don't we? Yeah, I've got the map in front of me. It's on a... looks like the board size. Now, I'm not sure if it's labelled entirely correctly, but we've got a 15-inch by 30-inch board, which is incredibly small, with a huge amount of houses and the Golden Hall inside it. So this is... First thing we did when we set it up was found how we're going to fit all this terrain on this tiny board. That was really difficult. So a lot of our houses overlap the edges of the board. Whether or not Marty actually meant it's on a bigger board with the city as a smaller part of it, I'm not sure. But I guess we have to go by what we're doing. Um, we did find a solution for it, but the biggest problem we found was that the good actually couldn't fit in their deployment zone. They physically could not fit. Not a good start. No, it was actually a really terrible start. So we were... <laughs> To be honest, we were worried about this scenario because lots of special rules, lots of ones we haven't seen before, and then the good side not fitting in the deployment zone sort of made for a bit of a worry, a bit of a... We weren't so sure about this scenario. What we did, we put up the Helm's Deep walls at the end of the board, so it's got a gate there, and said that good can enter through the gate. So as long as there's a space, they can put the models in. So they had reinforcements through a fair chunk of the game, which actually turned out okay. That was a, that was a decent solution for it. Okay, that's good. Yeah, It seems like... You know, it, it could quite easily be on a 2x4. Yeah, 2x4, yeah. yeah, I think that would probably be the way to go. Mm. Or or cordon off the walls a bit and have some spaces to the side. 
Yeah. So, what were your first impressions, Matt? Okay, so, well, as you were talking about the Shaman, I'm thinking, all right, you probably want those Uryx then around late game because they're the only things that are going to stick around. So, from an evil perspective, and of course, I always think of the evil perspective first. Of course you do. <laughs> you probably want to be throwing the other two warbands, so that's the Dunlendings and the Orcs, right in, going straight for AMS straight away, pushing them forward, keeping the Uryx in reserve to ensure that you've got numbers back on that hall. And numbers that will not run away, even if everything else just gets wiped out. Yep, that sounds about right. Now, the the players for this one, it started off, David and Kylie were testing it out. And I joined in halfway when I think it was Kylie had to had to leave. And and so I took over the game halfway. We play, played through it a, a couple of times with sort of the same, same results. But the, this scenario actually surprised me. Because the main thing... The, the the good force looked well and truly overpowered. So many cavalry models, they looked incredibly strong, but they were fighting in such a bottleneck that they could never get all their cavalry models to bear. So the evil side were, were almost always fighting with more attacks. The good side had the banner, but it was not this good side crashing through it. They Their cavalry really went against them, and the troll took up such a big space because a 15-inch board, you've got a troll that can almost th- stand in the middle of the board and throw to the entirety of either side of the board and knock over all the cavalry models. So breaking through in 10 turns became an actual real tough ask for it. Yeah. And what it meant was that Imrahil had to go take on the troll and use up all his might basically just to hold off and mitigate the troll's damage. So you, you basically tank the troll with your best hero while Aemir just called heroic combats every turn. Yeah, it, it sounds like yeah, you have very little choice but to use Aemir despite the fact that it's a loss condition if you uh, if you get him killed. Which I thought was fantastic mm. because a lot of these scenarios where if a single model dies, you just go and put them in the back and hide them. But this one, to get there in 10 turns, you had to be aggressive AMA. And it meant that the Shaman was there to throw Fury, to throw a cheeky transfix occasionally, if possible. Uh, I think the transfix failed all the time we did it, but if they pass, that's that's a bit scary. Uh, There's always a couple of Urukai sitting at the back in contact with the hall, and then the Shaman ready to fall back when for break tests. But... When the good side won, basically AMA just did heroic combat after heroic combat after heroic combat, failed about half of them, but finally got through, knocked down the Shaman, sprinted around the back and got to turn nine. It was it was actually really exciting, and we enjoyed the scenario quite a bit. And the good side had plenty of models, and, and there was no stress in terms of actually physically being able to kill the evil side, but the stress was the evil side could really effectively plug up that gap. So it was really hard to get through, and they just swarms of the evil just kept filling the gap so Aemir had to do basically the double combat each turn just to put a hole in and then even consider doing a heroic combat immediately afterwards to push past as well so after all that it seems like the smaller board was quite intentional or at least the uh, terrain layout oh there's no possible way this scenario would have worked without that tight compact board now I would have still liked it on a bit bigger board with with just as many houses, like a bit more houses on there. But the actual concept of the scenario was something I hadn't played before, and I was really impressed. The extra move, the movement rule, I don't think was necessary at all, because most of the time, because of the such tight confines, the evil, uh, the good side were only moving six inches most turn anyway. So I think that can probably be got rid of entirely. Uh, I was disappointed you can't deploy the the good side, or it wasn't made clear that they come on in reinforcements. So if that was cleared up, I think this would have gone across a bit better. It was actually a really, really fun scenario. It was one of those ones where we looked at it and it was exciting the whole game, which is always what you want in the scenario. There was that real clash of heroes, the Isengard troll versus 
Imre Hill, and then Ahima trying to take down the Shaman. Well, there's an Orc Captain and Dunland Captain really making a mess of them and trying to take down their horses. Gambling's sort of being a support model, but you also want to throw him in combat because he's a good killer. There's heaps of Rogard, heaps of Knights of Lancers, so you're always trying to get Knights, the, the Dol Amrathons, into the Isengard Troll, but the damn Isengard Troll of Defense 8 is just never dying, so... It was really quite enjoyable, and I do think Marty played it. It felt like one of those scenarios that was play-tested through. Um, I think I think some of the, the layout of the actual scenario rules and the, the diagrams and things could be touched up, but overall, this is a really positive experience. Sounds fantastic. I'll have to give it a go at some point. I recommend you do, actually. It's, this is And it's it's on such a small board, and the board looked really nice. Like the full Rohan village behind the city walls looked really cool. So I, I was happy with this one, and... Yeah, it's funny about first impressions, isn't it? First impressions, we looked at this and went, uh-oh, not again. And then played through and went, we're wrong. Not bad. This was fun. <laughs> yeah. So well done, Marty. Thank you very much for that one. So that was Marty Taha's Return to Edoras. Ride to Helm's Deep by Jesse Heiss. Gandalf has retrieved the Rohirrim horse lords to aid Théoden in the defense of Helm's Deep. They now ride to war in all haste, however they run into some trouble with the rearguard of the Isengard horde. Good participants are Aemir, Marshal of the Riddenmark, with horse and throwing spears. So a standard Aemir model. Yeah, the usual one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Gandalf the White on Shadowfax. Always nice. I like this participant so far. It looks nice and themey. Yeah. Erkenbrand with horse. Another good choice. Yeah, and then Yeah, Jerkenbrand. And up to 350 points of Rohan units. So Rohan models. No other named heroes may be used. So I assume that you've got to put them in warbands with Aemir and Erkenbrand. And then if you have to have any points spill over, make another warband. We Just usually a captain go, or something. Yeah. yeah. We usually go, even unless we're told otherwise, the warband rules with points match games. Um, it just actually makes scenarios a bit more interesting because you get a bit more, bit more hero focus. And then for the evil participants, you get up to 800 points of Isengard units. No named heroes may be used. So, so that's just captains and shamans. Yes, it's a horde. Mm. Yep. So happy with the participants so far. Looks decent. Looks like it's a points match but with themed forces, which is not a bad thing. Yeah, that's cool. I don't mind that they've at least given us those three heroes. It's pretty clear what this is about. And, yeah, just a ton of Urukai. Cool. And the the rules mean that we're pretty much choosing themed forces, so that's good. You can, can mould it to your collection. Layout. Played on a 6x4 foot board, representing the Rohan Plain with some spotted trees, rocky outcrops, and a few low hills. Those hills again. The low hills. So, are the spotted trees, are they a specific kind of tree, or is that... I've never seen spotted trees, but I'm no. assuming they... Maybe they have them in Rohan, I don't know. Yeah, so, so for this scenario, we put out our trees... And what I did, because I didn't have any spotted trees, I got out my, my paint and I went and just did some dots on a few trees just to give them some spots to make sure they fit the scenario. Do you know, that's exactly what I did when I was basing my Rohirrim. I took out a little bit of white paint and I put some little spots on some bushes. So we got mm. spotted bushes there too. They'd oh, probably go right. well with the spotted trees. Yeah, it would go very well yeah. with spotted trees. Perfect. This scenario is played with each side deploying on the short four-foot table edge, which means that you get quite a big distance to go through. So you've got... I, I like those when you give a 6x4 board and force the people to use the whole board. I think that's a good choice in itself. Yeah, seems cool. Yeah. Then the starting positions. The Rohan Force sets up entirely within 8 inches of their own table edge. So there's going to be a, a 
foot gap because there's no reason for them to go back. So there's, there's going to be some table that's not being used there behind them. Not a huge amount, but yeah, a little bit behind them. Next, the Isengard force then deploys one warband at a time. On a one to three, they deploy within 12 inches of the middle of the board. So the middle of the board, so that's a 12 inch, 12 inch uh, radius circle in the middle of the board. Could be close to the Rohirrim, could be far away. Yeah, that's the only way to read that one. Yep. Yep. And it's it could be quite close because you've got basically thirty what is it thirty six inches on one side of the board eighteen so you could be up to six inches away from the Rohan if they set up nice and close to you so you might actually be mm. able to get a charge off first turn which could be interesting. On a roll of the four to six, they deploy in the back twenty four inches of their side of the board, so they have to be far away. What I think would end up happening is the evil side would probably end up being reasonably close together and not in obvious ways to. To, to be attacked by the Rohan. So you'd probably put the ones you get in that, that 12 inch diameter, 12 inch radius back circle. You back them, yeah. back them up and you put the other ones forward as possibly can and meet the forces together as soon as you can. Yep. For sure. The objectives are for the good side, Aemir and Gandalf must exit via the opponent's table edge by either moving in the move phase or by way of a heroic combat's extra movement. For the evil side, they must slay both Aemir and Gandalf before they reach their table edge. So it's all about Aemir and Gandalf. Get Aemir and Gandalf off the board or slay them. Simple stuff. So good so far. Good stuff. Looks good. Yeah, yeah. Very simple objectives. Obviously, setting up in Rohan. The It's very clear how the layout's done. I like it so far, yes. Yeah, no, I wouldn't mind putting this down. We got David and a few other people. He was in charge of testing this scenario out, so he's given us some very detailed notes of his experience on it. So we'll go through those very soon. Now, the special rules are desperate times. The reinforcements are desperate to reach Helm's Deep to aid Thaden's last defense. The good side's force is only broken when down to a third of initial model count rather than the normal half. Additionally, Aimer and Gandalf may expend one point of might per turn without reducing their might store. Yikes. That's yeah, I know. A third down from a half. Um, yeah. So I assume it's with the new break this rule, so you get the plus one. So you've got to basically kill 66% and then one more. Yes. Yep. So you have to kill the vast majority of them, but Aimer and Gandalf get Mighty Hero. Yeah, that's... Yes. That's and because they're the main models, that's going to be really tricky because what Gandalf can do with that is huge. Those spells, the Sorceress Blast is basically going to be going on. What's Gandalf's Sorceress Blast going normally? Five plus? Gandalf the White, four plus? Gandalf the White, four plus. So you're looking at three plus Sorceress Blast if you want to be a bit conservative. Mm. Aemir getting his three might plus the, the heroic combats. These are going to be fantastically powerful characters. That's huge. So hopefully the evil side has something to mitigate that down the special rules. We'll see. The king's heir. Aemir is becoming one of the greatest warriors in Middle-earth and rides to defend his king and country. Aemir may reroll failed fate rolls. In addition, on a turn where Aemir charges, he is strength five. Double ouch. Mm. Aemir is becoming a beast in this scenario. Yeah, he is huge. Fate rolls, well, yeah, that's great. On a turn where he charges strength five, nasty, nasty, nasty. Okay, so here we go. Here's the mitigating rule for the evil side. Here we go. Finally, some action. The Isengard rearguard are excited to finally get a chance to fight. Their leaders rev up the army into a fighting frenzy. When an Urukai shaman casts Channeled Fury, the range of the spell around him is increased to 12 inches, in addition to the special fate roll of 5+. plus. So you get double the range, basically. Yeah, that's a very big fury. It's and a big fury, yeah. So that will that will definitely help you out with 
with keeping your models around. So if you design your force with a lot of models with a shaman, maybe two shamans to take advantage of this rule, away you go. This is dangerous, however, as if the cast attempt is failed, remove the shaman as a casualty, ignoring any remaining fate points the model may have. It is assumed the warriors around him are so worked up for a fight that they attack him and kill the shaman instead. Yes, I, I do like the fluff there. That's very nice. <laughs> yeah, can you just imagine the shaman getting into his war dance, like slapping himself with all the blood and dancing around, dancing around. <laughs> and like the Uruk, I just turn around and go, <laughs> start like throwing tomatoes and shields and things at him and end up killing him. Yeah, fantastic. Interesting. It it's a, means that Channel Fury is more attractive than it normally is because normally I wouldn't cast a Channel Fury. I'm not so worried about the extra pip for the, the saves and... And rolling a 5-plus is still a pretty tough roll. So In this case, though, you're covering your entire army. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, definitely going to have courage all around the board once they break. Yeah, but the the good side with such a small amount is probably only taking you on in a relatively small area. So, I'm not I'm not so sure about this. I don't know that it mitigates the, the mighty hero and the the extra AMS stuff, but it's a, it's a decent idea for it, and it's simple, simple enough to work out. So, the rules themselves are are well-written and simple, but they look like they could tip the tide. So let's go on to David's notes and see what he says about this scenario. Okay, David wrote some very detailed notes, which I'll read to you verbatim. Initial thoughts, mighty hero, you say. So in David's writing, mighty hero, you say? That's the one, yes. Basically a points match. Yep, so he's looked at it, it's a points match. Yep, absolutely. So it's, it's heavily reliant on what forces you take. He also says that with Mighty Hero, breaking through seems a foregone conclusion. Yeah. That's, that's my David voice. I'm sorry, David. Yeah, no. It's, well, no, I'm not yeah, sorry no. for David. Too bad, David. <laughs> you should have been on this cast. And don't make stupid excuses like I've got to do adult things or I've got to do schoolwork or anything like that. It's ridiculous. But basically what they found was that you could not stop Aemir and Gandalf. They, the Mighty Hero meant that they could just do anything they want. The movement of the Rohirrim is fantastic. So being able to throw in free marches or free heroic moves and then you can outmaneuver. You've got Gandalf Sorceress blasting on essentially a 3-plus when he wants with his free point of might, just pushing guys around. It means that, that the evil side really doesn't have much to do. Now, assume with the evil side they're going to take some crossbows and things like that to help mitigate that. But then Gandalf's got the blinding light. So you've got... Rohan's got huge shooting advantage there. They've got huge maneuver advantage. They can do everything, and there's no real time limit. So they can play around until the evil force is broken and then just march until they get off with Aemir and Gandalf. Yeah, this seems to me a lot like something that I think we've encountered with a few of these scenarios that people have sent in, where they kind of expect these big, beefy heroes to just sort of walk in and just fight normally and, and just fight as, as they would regularly do with their normal profile. But when you beef them up like this, they become a completely different character. They they completely change what they're capable of. Yeah, see, basically you've got an Aragorn and a, a spellcasting Aragorn on the board, which is incredibly powerful. And if you're just going to throw them forward and hope and that extra point of might is just to win combat, that's one thing. But because they can use it on their heroics and because they can manipulate with the board with it, it means that you've actually turned them into incredibly powerful heroes. And with the Isengard not being able to take any of their named heroes, which Isengard has a fantastic little mini-named heroes, and you can't, which is okay, it fits the storyline, but they don't really have anything to counter. In the words of David, two mighty heroes and being able to benefit from multiple heroes is silly. Yeah, and that's, yeah, not to mention the Oakenbrand in there. So 
uh, David wasn't wasn't the most impressed with this scenario. I think he was a bit disappointed because he got all excited about Amir and Gandalf and the, and the setup and and how it looked so themey and it was a great setup. And then basically Amir and Gandalf just could do what they want, walked right through the the. Gandalf manipulation is just huge. The transfixes, the blasts, the compels, the blinding lights, everything that Gandalf's got going is amazing. Amir acting like Aragorn and killing a couple guys a turn, and the Rohirrim are powerful enough. Standing back shooting, it was... Yeah, David was a bit sad about this one. It didn't turn out the way he wanted it to turn out. So, let's say we get rid of that mighty hero rule. Is that enough to turn this around? Quite possibly. That's the first thing I'll be doing. Maybe you give them, if you really want that, give them one extra point of might each for the whole game maybe 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 if you want one to be super powerful you could give them that you know that four plus it doesn't cost a point of might rule something like uh, that the all rule yeah, yeah something like that i think would probably work or a bit better. Yeah. yeah because it means that they get that benefit of it but it's still a risk when you use it mm. whereas this one it's there's no downside for just throwing that point of might away every turn so you want yeah, something they, to make people think about it. They've essentially got like 20 might, like depending on how long the game goes. Well, the game could go for a long time. Yeah. Six by four board of Rohan and a small amount of models. Like you've got the three fifty points of worth plus these three big heroes. Yeah, there's no time limit here. You're going to be playing with probably, what, 24 models on the board in total? Uh, yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, so mm. that's, that's going to mean you've got endless time to go because mm. you will be manip- manipulating that. You're going to start off the game... Like, with the blinding light of Gandalf shooting, pinning them down, forcing the evil to come at you, and then you're probably gonna gonna faint to one side and then Surround break them, through. Yeah, smash them. Yeah, look, the the themes there, the layout ideas are there, which is fine. The the participants, I, I feel like you could just get more specific, and I feel like you could make it so that yeah, agreed. It, it, you know, it, it's always nice to have spe- specific participants to. Paint that up, and or maybe and have exactly both. Have the need. points and the and yeah. There's nothing wrong with that either. Yeah. Like my theory is that if you're entering these in a competition, you're probably play testing them. So just give us the participants you used, and then at least we know what what you what was the starting point was. Perfect compromise. Yes. So give it, give us that. Here's the points matches. Here's an example of what it was play tested with. Done. And then that that would solve that. I just I'm so concerned about buffing up heroes because I feel that sometimes it's. It just has too much of an influence of the game. And when there's no threat, it takes away some of the fun of the game. If you know that that Amir and Gandalf can go through and do what they want, basically no problems, it really takes the stress out of the game. And it's it's a bit disappointing for both players because they feel like they can't manipulate the game. The game's playing them rather than they're playing the game. I feel like we've seen this, you know, I, I mentioned this. We've seen this a few times. A few people have tried to do this. And it, it kind of feels like, you know, they just don't want them to fail horribly they don't want these heroes to fail really quickly and and go down and that's a bit of an anti-climax but then they swing it too much in the other direction so these heroes really don't need it no they're fantastic heroes and you could do some really powerful stuff with that even without that mighty hero that there's i'm concerned that the the rohan might still be able to do that hug back hug back sort of thing the the evil side really has to push forward which they might be able to do with that center deployment so I wouldn't mind giving this one a try without those special rules. I think that'll probably be the way to go initially and just see what happens. And only add special rules if your game absolutely needs them, but then test them really well. Try and add really small special rules. Don't add big things. This is a massive swing to go from, say, trying it without that to trying it with it. So that was Ride to Helm's Deep.
Retreat from the Fords of Eisen by Quinn Duggan. Aemer has found the body of the Prince of Rohan, Theodred, at the Fords of Eisen. The enemy had thought to have been routed, and the day won by the efforts of Alfhelm and Grimbold. Little did the resting warriors know that the enemy had merely made a tactical retreat and were about to launch a counterattack. I don't like to think of it as a tactical retreat. I like to think of it as advancing in a different direction. Yeah, that's I. That's the beauty of the game, isn't it? You can advance in any direction you want, so you can make things look like a tactical retreat, even though that's where you plan to go always. Yeah, so of course. I think they already planned that. That was fine. <laughs> the layout takes place on a four-foot-by-four-foot four board with a river going from north to south through the middle, which is shallow water, with rocky outcrops scattered around the board. This is exactly the same layout as the two towers version of the Fords of Eisen. Oh, there you go. So you've, we had the board already ready got the to board. go. Yeah. Yep, no, so happy about that. Starting positions. Set up as in seize the prize. Evil on the western board edge and good on the eastern board edge. The artifact is Theodred's body. So, set up as in seize the prize. Basically, it's a standard setup. We're not sure which seize the prize, whether it's the one from Legions of Middle Earth or whether it's the one from the the uh, the new one, the the Mirkwood book. If uh, I were to guess, I would say Legions. Probably Legions. Yeah. There was one as well, a seize the prize in the. Um, the second Hobbit one, what was that called? Desolation of Smaug, am I yes, right? Yes, that's the one. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yep, so we went to that. Caesar Prize. I'm going to give you a bit of background on Caesar Prize. Caesar Prize was the one scenario in Legions of Middle-Earth that we basically banned from tournaments because what happened was in those days, whoever got to the middle first was guaranteed a win because literally all you had to do was get this prize off, which is very easy to do, and you walled off of your whole army. So if you had Cav and the other person did not, you pretty much got an auto win. If you walked up to the middle with both infantry and you got your heroic move off, what you did was push past the objective, wall off the objective, a guy in the back row would pick it up, and then all I had to do was get it off your own board edge. So instead of breaking through, you had to get off your own, which was then a foregone conclusion. You really couldn't break through unless you had something like a flying dragon or something like that. Even then, if you had a dragon, you should have got the prize to start with. So this is one of those scenarios that, that was an idea that didn't work in the Games Workshop book. Unfor- so, so unfortunately, we already have some bad... Memories yeah, of it, some so bad thoughts about initial this thought about scenario. this one. Quinn's picked the scenario that we didn't like out of Legion. So we'll go on. We'll go on to the participants. For good, there is Aemir, Marshal of the Ridmark of Shield. Lots of Aemirs because it's the Aemir comp. Marshal of the Ridmark of Shield, that's the appropriate choice for this one. Grimbold, Elfhelm, which is Urkenbrand without the horn. I like this oh, choice. Perfect. This is my. <laughs> this is a highlight. I mean... Urkenbrand without the horn is like my dream. Finally, he becomes usable. So, Alfhelm, perfect idea. Love it. 16 warriors of Rohan with assorted war gear of your choice. Six royal guard with throwing spears. So, you've got all infantry, we assume, because it's the Fords of Eisen. So, that's where they're fighting that. 16 warriors with assorted war gear. Yeah, I don't mind that. Pick up what well, you've got. That does just mean you can give them everything, really. Well, <laughs> if yeah. you're that kind of person. No, I just assume <laughs> you grab the models as they are. Y- I am that kind of person, Jerry. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of that kind of person. <laughs> and then the, the six Royal Guard of Throwing Spears. So a nice little fight for buff and some, some bodyguards. For evil, we have Vrasku. We have an Uruk Captain of Orc Boast, who are already two shooty captains. Good choice. Uh, Dunlin Chieftain, doesn't say what war gear. Ten Uruk Scouts of Assorted War Gear of your choice. Three Feral Urukai. And seven Dunlin Warriors, which... Two with two-handed weapon and five with shields. This I found very interesting. I'm wondering if Quinn has this in his collection because seven Dunland Warriors with two two-handed weapons and five shields is an interesting number. 
Yeah, odd, odd choice. Interesting. Yep. Doesn't seem like much evil from the first glance. No, it's, it seems quite small, doesn't it? Yeah, Vrasku, three three chieftains, but then you've got three on the good side as well. And then you've got a total of 20 evil models against 22? Uh, 22 warriors. 22 warriors on the good side. So it's pretty close. Standard petitions both sides. I can't help but feel like the, the good models were uh, higher quality, but maybe I'm just biased. They're probably about even. Yeah, Urkin Brown without the horn, I guess. Grimbold. Yeah, Grimbold's okay. Yeah. It, it, it's they're on foot. So, I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's probably about a 50-50 there. I think, yeah, probably the thing is you, you're thinking about Rohan heroes automatically being on horse. I do. So, I automatically yeah. do. I know I do, so yeah. Special rules are family. Aemir and Theodred are like brothers to each other, and Aemir would not let Theodred's body be desecrated by orc filth while he still draws breath. Aemir may call a heroic combat for free every turn if there are enemy in possession of Theodred's body. So that's interesting. Yeah. Like so that. if they're behind, he gets to gets the buff there. That's yeah. not a bad way of doing it actually, because mm. it's incredibly powerful rule. But evil's got some control over when they do that, so they might yeah, go true. kill Aemir first and then take the body. So that's not too bad. That's a good rule. Grand Marshals, Alfhelm and Aemir are amongst the greatest fighters Rowan has to offer, and as such, they lead by example. All warriors and royal guard within six inches of either Alfhelm or Aemir get one plus to their fight value. Uh, I don't know about this one. Uh oh. Yeah. Uh oh. We've seen fight this five before. Royal guard. We? Yeah. We've <laughs> seen this before. One plus fight value is massive. Six inches is massive. Six yeah, inches. I mean, why not three? Yeah. Like, and yeah. why both of them? Uh, yeah. What you could do is put it on one of them. So Aemir mm. or Alfhelm make it three inches and means they can control part of the battlefield but not the whole thing. Yeah. This one, they can comfortably control the entire battlefield. It, yeah, it's one of those ones where you might as well just give the entire board plus one five then. Yeah, and like, that that's a bit of a worry because that means that the Rohan, it takes away all their, their quirkiness and their disadvantages and, and turns it to an advantage. Weary, both sides have been fighting for hours on end. No heroic marches may be called at any point in the game. I don't mind this one because it seems to be straight counter to the Seize the Prize quirks because marching to the middle is a problem. And there's a little bit of the that whole thing where Aemir gets to increase his power if the evil side gets the prize. That's probably a good mitigation there, but there's none for the if the good side picks up the prize straight away. So the good side gets the prize. The evil side doesn't have much they can do about it. Fight five Royal Guard shielding in front of a prize. Think about that, Matt. Uh, I'm thinking about it, and I'm going, I, w- I wish I had the good side then. At yeah, because if that happens, the, the evil side's that's got no it, hope. Yeah. That's, that's done. They're not going to get through that. Mm. So, let's read through David's notes. Initial thoughts. Rohan's special rules seemed unnecessary. Yeah, I think I think. Yeah, I think that's pretty that. much what we said. Yeah. yeah, yeah, probably don't need them. It's just seize the prize in a bottleneck. Yep, seize the prize across the river. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good David voice as well. I like this Thank David you. voice. Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm struggling to think what he actually sounds like. Nothing like that Nothing at all. Nothing like that. <laughs> I'll keep doing it anyway. This is David's new voice. Why do we need to dig Theodred up? And why is he a light object? Good questions, I suppose. <laughs> These are the random thoughts of David. It's a scenario, David. Get over it there. <laughs> okay. In the middle of the game, he went on to say, whoever picks up Theodred has got insane advantage, made worse by the bottleneck. Yeah, and as we said, that's that's about right. That's the biggest concern. Yeah. It comes down to a race to get Thadred, and then yeah. the game's pretty much a foregone And that's conclusion. not the kind of 50-50 you really want to get there. No, no. You have to shoot out the carrier and everyone around him because of the river. 
So you're going to have a lot of spare models doing shooting because of yeah. the bottleneck. So that's why I'm concerned about the Fight 5 Royal Guard sitting on the river and just shielding it off. That's that's going to be tough. Finally, we have Seriously? Seize the prize? <laughs> that's the story before. Yeah, no. Uh, I think Queen got unlucky and chose the one that we don't particularly like because it has that flaw in it. Seize the prize was one of those scenarios where it looked like such a good idea. You, you look at the, how exciting is that? Race to the middle, pick it up, go there, and then you play the scenario, and it's, oh, that's it. I was always disappointed they didn't try and do more of a capture the flag type thing. They had, I think, Storm the Camp in Legions, which was sort of... Storm the Camp was amazing. It was that's, a great scenario, That's yeah. the one scenario I wish they would to reintroduce, because yeah, that was yeah. the one where basically you had to get within 12 inches of mm. your opponent's board corner. It was on a 4 by 4 board. And it was it was really tricky to do. You had to you, I w- I you had to guard ca- your own, but also get the other way. I've got a great storm the camp story. My opponent didn't really think about it. Walked their entire army outside of the uh, twelve within the corner. I just put bat swarm over the top. Yeah, won we've done one that model. one. <laughs> David outsmarted me in one where he was playing Rohan, and he just threw off his appointment. He threw some rubbish well, truly far forward. He put some in the middle, some at the back. And I thought, I'll just take him on piecemeal and did that. And then his middle force ended up doing a heroic combat against my force. He baited me with his rubbish force. And then the heroic combat, one guy in. And I turned around <laughs> and measured. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm Darn an inch it. out. <laughs> so he really got me there yeah, and well lulled played. me into a false sense of security by acting yeah. like an idiot, which which David's pretty good at. And then stuffed me up. So that was a fantastic one. Caesar Prize, not so much. Yeah. So yeah, it's unfortunate that uh, that you've chosen that one, Quinn. But there we are. Yep. Look, I like the participants. I like the fact that it's fought across the river. I don't mind the idea of rescuing Thaedra's body. I think that's something the good side would probably do in Tolkien's word world. So that's a, a good storyline there. But seize the prize. The concern is basically that it's just a race to the middle, and then you give it a whole bunch of buffs to Rohan for it as well, which is tricky. So in terms of what we what could be done about this one. I'm not sure, but I would actually consider it one of the ones where you don't actually take the prize away. So it turns into one of the... What's the new scenario where you just go in oh, the middle? Oh, just like hold ground or high ground, one of those Yeah, ones. I think some of that might actually work better for what you want to do. Mm. Defend the body, essentially. Yeah, because it's, mm. it's simpler, but it means it's... If you get to the middle, at least you can still fight in the middle. Because the big problem yeah. with Caesar Prize is you get to the middle and then the objective, and then the objective, moves, the objective yeah. runs away. Mm. And every turn you get further and further behind. Whereas if you, the objective is stationary... At least you got a chance to jump back onto it. Yep. Well, that was Retreat from the Fords of Eisen by Quinn Duggan. Aomer's Proposal After the defeat of the Dark Lord, Aomer, King of Rohan, stayed in Gondor to help his bro, King Elisar, rebuild his country. However, at a certain party... A certain princess was coming. Okay, so this is the layout here we're going to start with. Uh, we're just going to work our oh, way. Whose scenario, <laughs> Who scenario is this? Whose scenario is this? This Kelsey. is Kelsey Thompson's scenario. Mm-hmm. We're gonna we're gonna take our time with this one. We're gonna work through it slowly and try and make sure we know what's going on here. So we're gonna start with the layout. This scenario is played on a sixty centimeter by sixty centimeter board. So that is approximately two, approximately two, two foot, foot by two foot. Yes, two foot by two foot. Okay. The setting is an outdoor party, so there's, there's already some ideas there. Yeah, so I, I set it up like, um, think of the, the scene from the Extended Fellowship, I believe it was, where they did the, the long-awaited party, and you had the sort yes, of outdoor, yeah. and I really like that idea, so I had some barrels of like foods and stuff around, and some trees, and, and the bright board worked really well on that, so a nice setup. 
yeah, the suggestions here are trees, tables, uh, trim hedges, barrels, etc. So yeah, yeah, and that's, that's fantastic that's suggestions. Yeah. It also says try not to clutter the board, but lots is good. Also, no hills. Yeah, I think that might be because I went on a little bit of a rant when I was talking about these about how hills don't <laughs> add a huge amount of value to it. So I'm I'm hoping that Kelsey listened to that and said, oh, Jeremy doesn't like hills unless they add some value to it, so I'm not going to include it. But yeah, that's that's I think my own personal dislike because most of the time my models end up falling off the hills, and in a scenario like this, you don't want models falling down. Brilliant, Kelsey knows who's judging this competition, obviously. Mm, so we me. have this. St- <laughs> we have the starting positions. Aomer, Knight of the Pelennor on foot. So we've got starting positions mixed with the participants here. Aomer, Knight of the Pelennor on foot. Aragorn, King Elisar on foot. Eowyn, Shield Maiden of Rohan, naked. So I think that means that she probably doesn't have her armor and her shield. I hope things. so. I think that's probably just a wargaming term. I doubt she's actually turned up because they never released a model without clothes, did they? No, they didn't do that. There was one you with know. just a dress. Like, so that could be in like a nightgown. And like, that's probably the closest oh, we're going to so. get. Like yeah. we talk about Elrond in his pajamas at times, and that's that's I guess it's not literally pajamas. So I'm guessing that this is not literally naked. So this is Eowyn without any equipment. Yeah, I think that's right. And these three, four, three, three, and these three start on one board edge. Doesn't specify. It's a square. Doesn't matter too much. Prince Imrahil on foot. Prince Lothiriel, and it has a little one marker. It says, use the Goldberry model to stand in and use Eowyn's profile for stats. She's armed with an elvish jewel her father gave her, which gives her the shielding rule. Already, that's that's pretty interesting. So that's mm, an interesting profile there. Shielding with a jewel, I like that. Yeah, why not? And, <laughs> and also, ten swan knights on the other. So I think this means the other opposite side, board edge, yes. Not... It's it does say on the other, so it could really be any of the board edges, I suppose. Maybe but... the other is like a different plane of existence. Maybe it so. Is. It could be like they they to deploy, <laughs> and maybe they're across the sea in the along with the Valar. Is this going to be like four dimensional chess or something? This could be fantastic. You'd like that scene in Star Wars, you know, where they play the holograms or something. I imagine the holy the Swan Knights coming up there. Oh, this would be great. Star Trek, I think they had like four dimensional chest in there as well. It didn't make any sense. They had something like that in in Futurama or oh, Futurama maybe. maybe I can't remember. Wasn't there some? They're pretty much all the same sci-fi, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Yep. So uh, we believe it's the other side. The problem is as well. Swan Knights are they on? Are they mounted or are they not? That's it's a little bit confusing. Swan Knights. So I think we assume these ones are on foot. Yeah, yeah, you have to if it doesn't say they have a horse. Yeah, I, I think so. Here. So the other, I think we chose other sides. So we had basically the Swan Knights. Um, Prumpt, Imrahil, and was it Lothriel? Lothriel, yes. Lothriel, basically on one side of the board, and the uh, the Eowyn, Aemir, and Aragorn, is that right? On the other side of the yeah, board? Yeah, that's And right. then the next part, have you read about the nobles? Okay, so you then take turns at placing 15 nobles, which are king of men profile without any might, will, and fate. It's got in brackets there, for simplicity... Something it's anything this, but simple. Something this scenario has is not going to concern it with itself with any further for the rest of this. Uh, anywhere on the board. Literally anywhere so on the board. So we just threw them down randomly, essentially. We had some chatting to each other, some around I the I think barrels. at one point, we started boxing in Aragon. There were some tactics at some point, just, but it wasn't yeah. very much. We used the uh, Warriors of 
Numenor for this one. Um, Kylie originally asked me to go get out my 15 Kings of Men, to which I replied, I only have four painted, thank you very much. I was severely yeah. disappointed. You were very disappointed. So we ended up using Warriors of Numenor instead. So if I had 15 Kings of Men, this would have been the perfect scenario for me. Note to Jeremy, buy 11 more Kings of Men. No. No, stop. No one offer me Kings of Men, please. I don't want any. I do have a few. How much? I think I have four. Okay, maybe. Anyway, right. transactions will be made. Let's move on to the objectives. Aemer has had his eye on Princess Lothuriel for some time now. And yeah, if you read the book, you know where this goes. So uh, It stuff. says that he's trying to spoil Spoiler, Aemer has kids. <laughs> Let me say that. Read that again. Let me read that again. It says that Aemer is trying to swoon her. Mm-hmm. That, that's uh, yep. very romantic. Trying to make her faint on purpose. Mm-hmm. And then do what? Yep. Okay. No, no, that's but, fair enough. But Prince Imrahil, her father, will not have a bar of it. But he doesn't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a tricky situation. As a father, I'm dreading that sort of stuff if that ever happens. If I ever have a, a Princess Lothiel, <laughs> that would be one of my main concerns about AMS swooning her that I don't know about. <laughs> Oh, this is <laughs> this scenario's already got me intrigued. Keep going, Matt. Oh, enjoying this quite a bit. And, the, and then we have our uh, victory conditions. So for good, to do this, Aemer <laughs> must swoon. To spit it out, Matt, so we can get on with it. Which in brackets says knock unconscious. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Princess well, that's Lothiel, right. And carry her off his board edge. So the one that he started mm-hmm. on. Even though she's... <laughs> Even though I'll she's quite fit Even though she's and quite counts fit, as a heavy object. She counts as a heavy object despite being quite fit. Which is, okay. No, that, that makes 100% yeah, sense as well. Totally. I'm glad he specified that. At yeah, least 100% it, sex. It definitely has a really, oh, it's very good, sexist, yes. Yes. really good internal logic. I like that. It does. And it's got an internal consistency. <laughs> Be sexist at every single point in this scenario. Okay. Yeah. Love so it. for an Imrahil victory, which I'm guessing is like the evil side is Imrahil's side... Prince Imrahil or his swan knights knock Aemer unconscious, a.k.a. slay him. Hmm. Because, you know, when you find some creepy old guy hitting on your daughter, you know, you go into a fit of raid and go and attack him. Oh, yeah. Like all responsible parents do. <laughs> the swan knights real. came seriously. Like, there's a... There's a, like a fist fight, drunken fist fight, and they brought in, like, shields and swords and that, and they're, they're playing for keeps. I think we're, we're going to have to move on from this. Let's... All right. <laughs> There is also a third victory condition called the best party ever victory. If neither of the above conditions are met, then it's the best party ever. Which also known party? as the nobles go and beat everyone else up. We actually had that condition, but not for what you really expected in our scenario. Ours, uh, we basically got to the point where there was the, uh, the models in the party were, were intoxicated most of the time. So they were having fist fights and moving around at random and doing all this kind of crazy stuff in this scenario. And as players, I think that started to affect us. You know when you go to a party sometimes, and those of you who are over 18 have been to parties, of course. Uh, when some people are drinking, of course you're not because you're entirely sensible. But you start to feel a little bit woozy or a little bit affected by the alcohol because the other people are. This scenario felt the same way. I felt like because the models were intoxicated with their, our ailment with no weapons, our nobles running around... Our swan knights coming to the a party fully armoured, ready to, to, to take down Aemir, who's hitting on Prince Imrahil's daughter. 
I felt like their behavior was rubbing off on me as well. So my brain was getting a little bit muddled, a little bit confused as we're going on and as the nobles are stumbling around. And at the point, I think I think I maybe went unconscious during the scenario, which, which fulfilled the requirements of being the best party ever. Yes, neither of us know how the scenario ended. As a bystander to it, that is exactly what happened. Yes. Uh, we, we've got a bucket load of special rules going on, and I think instead of reading them all out, we might actually just summarize what happens. Basically, the nobles, they well, walk around randomly. Well, it even says next to the scenario special rules, it says, oh boy, here we go. Yeah. So the nobles walk around randomly, getting in the way of everything. The knights are trying to... What are the knights trying to do? Trying to take... Kick everyone out who's drunk, obviously. Yep. Um, Aragorn wins fights at all costs. So he just walks through. He's basically Tom Bombadil. And then Eowyn comes in as well as Aemir. And they're trying to get the princess. Now, when we played it, basically, there was just a wall of nobles and swan knights. So they didn't really have much of a chance to do that. There was one option when we had some might to be able to call some heroics and try and pull pull it off. But... We didn't manage to spring uh, the princess free, which is which is all right. My concern about the scenario was that there was just so much changes to the core system that it really just confused us entirely. And you could tell that with the tone of the scenario, it was supposed to be lighthearted, a bit of fun, a bit of a laugh, but it got bogged down in the rules to make it that. So I, my advice for, for this scenario is, is really simplified. If you're going to play basically a party game, which is what I think the intention was, and I have no problem with that intention, simplified a bit because it was a brain burner for what was supposed to be a crazy wacky scenario also pet hate don't introduce scattered ice into lord of the rings it doesn't work yeah i don't have a huge problem with that i i I prefer the the priority mechanic where you say so and so moves it or the other people move it because then you end up them going backwards and forwards and that but yeah it was. It became confusing which ones we rolled for because basically the nobles bounced around until the Swan Knights just brutalised them. Eventually getting Swan stuck do. in corners. Yeah. And Swan Knights with Imrahil's re-roll were incredibly powerful and they tend to walk through everything. And of course, because they brought swords and shields and things. So the scenario, look, I think the intention was, was okay. Um, yeah, of course it was sexist and that sort of stuff. But I think it was supposed to be a bit of a light-hearted joke and a bit of fun. And I thank Kelsey for, for giving us that. But it wasn't really our cup of tea. Or cup of anything, for that matter. No, not so much cup of anything. I think, to put it another way, it didn't really feel like a game of Lord of the Rings. It kind of felt like a completely different yeah. other game that would maybe be worth taking the time to learn and, and play. But It reminded me a bit of some of those crazy games that you play at, at sort of parties, like maybe Munchkins or... Um, killer bunnies or all those sort of ones where the game basically plays you rather than you play the game it felt like that like the game was controlling us rather than we were controlling the game yep. so this scenario i think i think as a as a light-hearted fun game once again has potential i've seen that for a bit of scenarios there but this one i think missed the mark by quite a bit from what we we're looking for well done kelsey for entering because you can only have a chance at a competition if you actually enter it so good on you for putting one together and um, look, I hope you can rework this scenario to be a bit more of a, a lighthearted, fun game and maybe do a bit of editing and make sure that it's it's nice and simple to read so you don't explode your mind trying to work out what's happening. Regardless, it was a fun read, at least. Oh, look, we, we, were, we were laughing quite a bit during the scenario and we, 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 we've been bagging the scenario basically and saying it wasn't what we expected. But in terms of fun, we, we actually had a fair bit of fun there. We had some laughs there and the laugh was almost at ourselves and at the game and that sort of stuff. So... It was entertaining. 
And that was AMS Proposal. Wrath of Wood. When scouting at the north of the Eastfold and hunting down trespassers from Isengard, Eomir and his riders end up too near the forest Vangorn. The night falls and they find themselves surrounded by unfriendly creatures. Eomir and his men are in a hurry to catch a large band of Urukai passing their lands. Yet there are wag riders of Saruman in their way. The sound of fight wakens the hostile inhabitants of this old wood. Our next scenario up is Wrath of Wood by Kale and One. Now, this scenario has the participants. Yep, so of course we have Aemir, and he's just regular Aemir in this one. He's on a horse and carries a throwing spear. He's also got a captain of Rohan mounted on a horse with a shield. Two Rohan outriders, who are actually going to be outriding in this game, and 12 riders of Rohan, four with throwing spear, four with bow. So we've got a good compact number of models to start with here. We've got Aemir and a captain on horse, which is a good start. One sing oh, two boxes of the Rohan riders, 12 riders. Yeah. And then the two outriders as well. And I really love outriders as outriders. So this already gets a, a nice tick of approval from me because outriders outriding sounds good to me. As opposed to outwalkers, of course. Yeah, no, the, the prevalence of outwalkers that, that people use is a bit of a worry. Then we have the evil participants. And we have Sharku, the spear catcher, which is a special profile just for this scenario. And 12 walk riders, four with throwing spear, four with bow, and four with shield. So once again, two boxes of cavalry. So good number of participants in this scenario, I think. Straight off the bat, we've got, what is it, uh, 16 for the good side and then 13 for the evil side. Mm -hmm. All cavalry, interestingly enough. Yeah. And the layout, we've got quite a descriptive layout here. The scenario is played on a three foot by six foot board representing the southern edges of Forest Fangorn. The edges of, forest, of the forest are not as heavily wooded as the deep in the Fangorn, yet the board should be covered with plenty of terrain pieces, trees, rocks, and areas of difficult terrain. The board should be a sort of maze with lots of different routes from the east to the western board edge, the shorter edges, so that a monster sized base or two riders can fit together most of the time and move around, but sometimes have a challenge. There should be a lot of terrain pieces that can be jumped over by cavalry models, so little stones and sticks as fallen trees are great. Just make sure you agree with your opponent which objects are jumpable before the game. It's good to spend a while putting together the terrain. Try to make it tactically as interesting as possible. The best way is to build together first and then throw dice to see who plays good and who plays evil. Which, interestingly, is exactly how we figured out who was going to play what for this scenario. We had great fun putting together this board. The three foot by six foot means I got to use the secret weapon miniature tiles. So we laid out the six foot by three foot board and we actually sort of got together and, and played around with it to make all these maze pathways. And it was a really good description. It was definitely what we did. We had to add more forests. So the, the forests that I had built in weren't enough for this one. So we added additional forests, additional rocks, additional stuff. And it became a really good board. It was quite dense. It looked really good. And having Cav go through it was really cinematic. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to set up. There were a few sections which were a little bit more open, a few that were really tight to get through, a few areas that cavalry might have to jump over. So it was a lot of fun putting that together. And the starting positions are such that the good player places two outriders of Rohan in the middle of the board, the captain of Rohan and six riders touching the eastern edge of the board, and finally Aemir and six riders of Rohan between these two. So you've got a three-stage deployment for the good side. The evil player places Sharku, the spear catcher, and his wag riders touching the western edge of the board. So we've used the whole board already because we're going east to west. It's thin enough that the the evil models basically took up the whole board, didn't they? 
pretty close to it once you factored in all the terrain and stuff. Mm. So it looked really good. It looked like they really thought about the board size there. So the objectives for the scenario, the good side means if Amir and seven riders manage to leave the board, Amir may leave as a passenger if he gets knocked off his horse, so you can mount up in that way. The evil side wins if they can prevent that. The evil side is wiped out before Amir and his riders manage to leave the board, then the game ends in a draw. Yep. So we've got to get Amir and seven riders off the western board edge. We debated riders a little bit because it says Amir may leave as a passenger of another rider, whether they actually have to be mounted or not. And I think in the end of it, we decided they just had to, to leave as being alive. But Amy could leave as a passenger, and I, I'm not sure 100% what they mean by that, though. So it could be open to interpretation a little bit. I think we ended up going with it was um, Amy and seven horses had to leave the board. I think it was the little shortcut we ended up using for that. Oh, that sounds very logically right. I like that choice. <laughs> and then if the evil side is wiped out before Amy and his riders managed to leave the board, it's a draw. This is an interesting condition. I'm not sure about this one. I know it's to, to encourage speed. But it feels a little bit anticlimactic at times, isn't it? When they're about to run off, they're all ready to go. There's one half a move away from the board edge and then a wild rider fails his courage test or dies from a throwing spear and then game over. It's a draw. And it's very tricky to try and keep those sort of orcs and wags alive with, say, charging them and shielding because you're mounted and you can't shield unless you want to dismount and get rid of your precious horse, which is absolutely invaluable to this scenario. Yeah, you definitely end up doing a little bit of tricks there, which I don't know was the intention, but it, it it worked. Okay, specials are the darkness. The night has fallen, but this bothers not the creatures of the night. The good vision of this side is limited to eight inches. The orcs and who earns see normally. So we've already hinted at who earns, but the eight inches for the good side, orcs can see because they're obviously creatures of the night and they have some good visions, but this really throws off your, your potential bow fire. You've got a lot of bows, but you don't really get to use them. And it also throws off some of your charges because you've got a 10-inch move, but only an 8-inch charge because you have to be able to see a model. Yeah, I thought this was really clever. It meant that the Rohan really were at a bit of a disadvantage in terms of uh, having to get stuck in rather than playing the way that Rohan necessarily wants to. It felt like much more of a time limit because the Orcs would have to... The, the Rohan would not necessarily be able to sit back. They need to get straight into it. They need to get straight through there or else the Orcs will be able to shoot out their horses. And then we have the Huerns. The sound of battle wakens a hostile trees of Fangorn. Without the guidance of the Ents, Huerns are a danger to everything bigger than a rabbit that foolishly enter their realm. So we've got lots of models that are bigger than rabbits in this one, so they are definitely a danger to them. Every turn after the fight phase, at the end of his or her move phase, the player with priority places one Huern in base contact with some woodish terrain piece, not nearer than 6 inches, but not further than 18 inches from an enemy model. So basically... Every turn after the first fight phase. So we're talking about second turn onwards. Every turn after the first fight. Yes. So second turn onwards, you place the person with priority, places a Huern in base contact with some wooden terrain feature. So we just said forest, basically, or, or trees that are already there, not, not other Huerns. Between 6 and 18 inches from an enemy model. So you've got this little arc where you can set them up. So you've got limited choices, but there's always enough woods. The newly arrived Huern cannot move or do anything that turn. So it's basically frozen. It just appears that turn. And then from the next turn, it starts moving. I think we might have stuffed this up a little bit. Uh, we, I think we moved them the turn that they appeared, didn't we? Did we? I'm pretty sure we did. I think we got the habit of moving them on that turn. So they're actually a frozen turn. So we had hyper-aggressive Huerns in there, which was actually quite fun. But yeah, you get a, get a one-turn 
respite from them. That's interesting because it was already, like the way that we play it, obviously we've made a mistake here, but it already felt like it was certainly possible to game them, to move them about where you wanted them to, even with them moving on the first turn. So, I, Look, I, I think it's play it like you do. It probably makes it slightly more challenging our way, but that was good fun. The Huans are always controlled by the player who does not have priority. However, they are not part of their force, so they can't take heroic actions. They're excluded when counting for break tests. Uh, they cannot enter the control zone if they're not engaged and so on. So they're, they're not really part of their force. Huans must always charge the nearest enemy model if possible. So this is the person with priority, is their enemy. If possible, or move as close as possible towards it. So they basically, you don't have a choice of their movement. They run towards the closest model with the person who's got priority. Huns also have a try to do a shoot attack against the nearest enemy model, even if it is in a fight with a friendly model. So they've got a throwing weapon attack that we'll get to soon, and they have to use that if possible. So they they pretty much control themselves. Like it says, they're controlled by the player without priority, but it basically just means they attack the player with priority after the player with priority has moved. Essentially, that's that's the difference there. Pretty much. Courage in numbers. A brave-hearted example or a comrade's life in danger can help warriors to overcome their personal fears. When doing a courage test to charge a terror-causing enemy hero or warrior gets one plus courage if there is an already a friendly model in combat with that enemy. So a bonus for charging who earns, basically. Did this come up very often? Not a single time in either of my games. Yes, I don't think it came up once. So. No, we found that we were only charging them maybe with one model, but most of the time that trees charged us so we didn't have to worry about it and if we charged them it would be to sack a guy to allow others to move past the trees yeah. so the, the charging was not like you could actually set it up where you just moved an inch away from them and you knew that they were going to come and charge you anyway so you don't need to, to use this rule too often so that that was a tactic quite often was set a dummy forward to grab all the trees and they, they end up charging that person because he was closest new profiles who earns these are a great conversion opportunity, which gets a thumbs up for me. I love that idea. But you can also use Ents or simply cut out a monster size base to a tree instead, or even use Trolls you both agree. I use some trees that I've got on 40 mil bases that I've used for one of the scenarios from the Scam of the Shire book. Um, and it's just basic trees on 40 mil bases. So if I was going to play the scenario again, I'll probably go to the effort to make some basically half Ents. So trees with maybe an arm or a face or something that's starting to come out, but not quite an Ent. They have a move of six inches, a fight of one five plus shoot, a strength of six, defense of five, two attacks, two wounds, and a courage of one. Their war gear is branches, hand weapons. They also count as throwing weapons of a range of three inches and a strength of six. So five plus to hit, but good strength. Special rules, they've got terror. They've got one with a forest. So basically they can move through any terrain pieces as if it would not exist. They also have a line of sight to all the battlefield, and it can even make shoot attacks through terrain pieces, though not through friendly models. So basically they ignore terrain for, for want of a better word and they automatically pass courage test. So the courage of one is a bit irrelevant there. They've got deep root. Wounds are not invincible, but their roots grow deep. If it loses a fight, it never backs away, but the winner does. So you can't push it away in a fight. Mounted enemies gain one plus attack heavy bonus when charging Huern, but they cannot be knocked prone. So Huern's cannot be knocked prone. If enemy models lose a fight against a Huern, but survive the wounding, it is knocked prone. So an enemy model gets attacked by Huern, it survives it. After it's survived, it gets knocked prone. So it gets knocked off its horse or whatever. So if it survives, it's prone, you don't get to double up strike. Which basically means if you ever lose combat against a Huern, you've 
lost your horse or your wag, which basically means you're useless for the rest of the game. Yeah, you're in trouble if the trees attack you, basically. Bararoom. Who owns hate all mammals, but some more than others? Who owns can reroll they fail to wound orcs, goblins, urukai, and dwarves? So this is, I guess, if you're playing a scenario of different participants. But against Sharky and his wag riders, you get to reroll failed wounds. Now we've got Sharku the spear catcher. Identical profile to Sharku from the Isengard list, but has the spear catcher special rule. After years of fighting against the riders of Rohan, Sharku has developed a counter-strike to their ways of war. If a shoot attack with a throwing spear manages to hit Sharku, but fails to wound, Sharku catches the spear from the air and can immediately perform a similar shooting action with his own shoot value 5+, against anyone in line of his sight and in range of the spear. Interesting rule. It's one that I'm not sure is the reason why it's there. Like, it's supposed to deter people from shooting at Sharku with throwing weapons, but let's be honest, you're still going to throw throwing weapons at him. I think it's there just to give him some defense against the throwing weapons. It's really anticlimactic if the Rohan go in and, and just throwing weapon him to death and that's their way out. My hope is they just thought it would be really funny, which is what I thought it was when it did happen one time, although unfortunately Sharku failed to hit. The way we play the scenarios as well, a rule like that is such a bait. Like we want to see what happens anyway, so we're all going to go for it anyway just because it, it's even more of a pride when you throw a throwing spear and kill his wag rider and he's missed the catch on the, the javelin, so he's tried to grab it out of the air and missed it, and it's hit his wag rider. Like, that's fantastic. So I don't mind the rule. It's not particularly difficult. It's the same profile. I think it, I actually think it's there just from a bit of a balance to, to make you think twice about throwing weapons at him. So I think a conservative player would avoid that. A player like us would not care. Just, just do it. The odds are so slim of him being able to return fire and actually pull off a kill with that throwing spear spear anyway so but imagine when he does he catches it out of the air and turns around and spears Amir with it that would be fantastic never tell me the odds Kylie and with might I don't think the odds are that bad actually if he if he really wants to he's pretty good by all means waste your might on a throwing spear if it takes Amir out I would be happy to so let's describe this game a bit okay so basically that we've got the setup Rohan's all on one side of the board and it they need to move quickly to get in the engagement range of the orcs. They need to punch a hole through and get as about eight of them off, essentially, which is tricky to do because you don't have a lot of margin for error. So you start on the whole uh, half of the board, you're staggered, so you can either wait a bit, but if you wait, the Huerns will build up and then they'll become an obstacle. So you basically send your outriders out to, to bait or wag riders around, but you don't engage with them. And then once your second wave arrives, you can essentially engage an area and try and break through. And then hopefully your third wave helps you out a little bit as well. It's quite a tense scenario. It is, but I found that I didn't try and make a play or anything until my third wave had gotten to the front. So I had my entire force there and available to use because, yes, the Huans can muddle you up, but they can also muddle the wargs up and you can use them to your advantage to get around the wargs. It's heavily reliant on priority in that case, isn't it? Because you want to be the one that the Huerns are not attacking, basically. Yeah, it's it's the first major disadvantage to priority that I can recall. It's it's really significant towards the end of the game. Yeah, we're, all, we're almost cheering at times when we lost priority, whereas <laughs> normally you cheer when you win priority. You say, if I just win a priority, I can win this scenario. This one's like, if I could just lose a priority, I'm fine, I'm fine. But sometimes it... When the break conditions started to, to hit in with the WAGs breaking, the priority became really muddled because you wanted to pin the WAG riders so they didn't all disappear so you can get your riders off. But then you had to deal with who weren't coming at you, so you often had to send a single horseless rider 
uh, out in the open to get attacked by the trees and hope you buy another turn. Yeah, I really liked how that was done. That worked out quite nicely. I loved the uh, the feeling that the Wags had where they just sort of, they can see all these Rohirrim coming towards them, but the Rohirrim can't see them. So they can just sort of line up in little choke points where they know the Rohirrim are going to have to go eventually. Unless they're winning a lot of priority, they don't have to worry about the Huons too much. It's it's a good spot to be in at the start of the game for the Wag Riders. And then Aemer and the Captain catch up and suddenly things start happening for the Rohirrim. My initial impressions of the scenario was that uh-oh, a lot of special rules, this is going to be a mess. And I was a little bit concerned about it. But as we started playing it, all the rules became pretty easy. There's a lot of special rules, but they happen pretty naturally. Like the Huerns initially look confusing, but they basically just play themselves. They just run at someone and, and, and kill them pretty much. They appear, that's a bit confusing how they appear, but it's not too bad. And then the, the spear catcher rule is just a little bit of fun that you remember because it's quite cinematic. So overall, I was pretty impressed with the scenario. Every special rule except for the spear catcher rule seemed to have a purpose in the scenario, and that's what I liked. It wasn't just there just to be there and make something stronger. It was there because it needed to be there. And that was Wrath of Wood. Whispers of Treason by Andrew Coleman. Grima Wormtongue has banished Aemir from the city of Edoras. This is but a part of his treacherous plan to destabilize Rohan for Saruman, however. Fearing that Aemir may prove a threat as a future claimant to the throne and a rogue force roaming the plains of Rohan, he conspires to lay an ambush for Aemir on the way to Olberg, his home province. Aemer and his companions have halted at a nearby homestead owned by a couple of his loyal friends when a trap is sprung. Grima has poisoned the minds of Rohan's protectorists to believe Aemer intends to overthrow their rightful king. Aemer must flee and reunite with his Aered before they can be safe from Grima's machinations. So Jeremy on my own this time reading through Whispers of Trees and unfortunately I lost the file for this. The computer crashed as it was saving it. So had a bit of trouble. And the disappointing part was this is by far our best recording. It was funny. It was snappy. It was on the ball. It was topical. It was amazing. And you'll never get to hear that. So I'll do my best to recreate that on my own. But I feel I may fall short. The participants for the good side are AML, Marshal of the Riddermark. So the normal AML with Throwing Spear. Eight Warriors of Rohan, three with bow, three with shields and throwing spears, and two with shields. So not very many at all. The participants for the evil side are Grima Wormtongue, Hammer, 12 Rohan Royal Guard, six of them have throwing spears. So once again, a small number of participants, and once again, good models as evil models, the ones that Grima has convinced to work for him. The layout of this scenario is played on a square board, 48 inches by 48 inches. The center of the board should feature a fenced paddock roughly 8 inches by 8 inches. Place 6 horse models inside the paddock. The paddock should be surrounded by buildings representing a homestead, although none should be closer than 6 inches to the paddock. The rest of the board should be covered to represent the plains of Rohan. So the setup is quite nice actually. You've got an 8 inch by 8 inch paddock in the middle. Then you've got a 6 inch gap and then lots of buildings of Rohan around there. So it looks quite good. And then we put some generic like bushes and shrubs and some trees and, and things at the side. So we really like this board setup. It was quite a good story. And I like the participants so far. So all good. The starting positions. 
The good side deploys each of his models except Aemir in base contact with any of the buildings in the homestead. The forces of evil then deploys his models anywhere along the edges of the board. The good side might then deploy Aemir in base contact with the building. Objective is for the good side to win, Aemir must escape by moving off any board edge. The evil side wins if Aemir is slain. So this is nice in that it allows you to, to play for 360 degrees. You, you have to predict where Aemir is going to go. He can go anywhere. So you have to surround him essentially and then grab him. And there's a couple special rules. The Horse Lords. Any model that moves into base contact of a riderless horse may attempt to mount it by taking a jump test. On a roll of a 1, the model fails to mount and may not move further that turn. On a 2 to a 5, the model successfully mounts the horse, but may not move further that turn. Replace it with the appropriate cavalry model. On a 6, the model successfully mounts up and may continue its movement, deducting any distance it had already moved that turn. Ride for your lives! The good side is already fleeing and does not have to take courage tests for being broken. Additionally, both sides are already travelling at breakneck speed. Neither side may call a heroic march. And then King's Advisor, the Royal Guard are bodyguards to Grima. Grima may be struck in combat as if Sauron has been slain. And Andrew provides an author's note. I've tried to design this scenario in such a way as to encourage you to try different approaches. You could potentially abandon the horses altogether and escape on foot by bursting through the circle, but run the risk of having mounted models catch up to you when the Royal Guard mount them. Or you can try and mount all the horses at the risk of being encircled because jumping the fences and mounting up will slow you down. Or you can do a combination of both, sending a few models to grab horses while the rest try to clear a path for them. Trying to slay Grima can make for interesting mind games. Remember it is possible for every model on both sides, including Grima, to use the horses. Try taking turns to play the good side and attempt different approaches. The scenario is fairly quick to play, don't be afraid to make your own modifications. Maybe give the fences a wound and defense value and try and break to make some room, or change the combatants to represent an Urukai raid or entirely new factions. Good luck and have fun. So I like the author's note, it gives some uh, interesting ideas about what Andrew was thinking. Now, we played the scenario first, and what I initially thought looking at the setup was, uh-oh, I think Amy can get off without him going for the horses. Because uh, because the starting position is that the good side deploys each of the models, except Amy in base contact of any of the buildings. So what you do is, all the buildings of the homestead, you place the Warhound models on the outside, the outer edge of those buildings. So maybe, what is it, two on each of them on each side. So not many, but enough to get a shield off here or there. Then the evil model deploys the Rohan Royal Guard, Hammer and Grima all around. Then you get to deploy Aemir. So if you put him on the outside of a building, so closest to a board edge, you only have to end up taking on an even number of, of evil models. And Aemir can easily take those down. So what happens is that Aemir can pretty much easily auto-win the scenario by running off, and the evil side doesn't have time to regroup. So that's a bit of worry. So we played that through, and it was exactly how we thought it. Aemir just walked off, called a heroic combat, and really made a mess of it. So that was disappointing, because he wasn't against any might. He was only against the Royal Guard, basically. His warriors shielded, held off the other two, and then yeah, they, he went straight through, got off the board edge. So that was a bit of a disappointment. So we then tried to put them saying that, that Aemir and the good models had to deploy on the inside of the buildings. So they had to deploy touching the buildings, but on the inner side near the, the fence. This worked a little bit better. So they ran into the fences to pick up horses, all jumped over, and then got a horse. Now then what happened is the evil side surrounded them essentially, got there, but Aemir decided to make a break for it. By once he had mounted up, he took a jump test to get over the fence. Now with the expert rider rule, he got to re-roll this. 
So what we did was basically spend some might to make sure it was a six, and then he got to keep moving. So often could find a gap there, or he could go charge like one model, one Royal Guard, and then call another heroic combat and be so far away that there was no chance. And he was outside Grimmie's influence. So we found that both both times we played this one, Aemir could just really get off with some well-placed might. So I think for, for this scenario to be balanced up and fixed up a little bit, I would consider maybe limiting Aemir's might, say he's weary from encirclement or unexpected or, or something, because his might, I know the Grim is there to stop it, but his might means that it really slows down the scenario. The other thing is maybe you can place Grima after you've placed Aemir, and maybe Grima is already within range of him or something like that. I'm not entirely sure, but you could probably modify it a little bit to get the result we want because the look was fantastic. The participants were fantastic. The idea was great, but it was just a little bit too easy for Aemir in both cases, and that means it was, it was a quick-to-play scenario, but it felt like you didn't have a huge amount of choice from the evil point of view. And I think what Andrew would have wanted was an actual fight of the way out, not a one-turn heroic and then off. So thanks for that, Andrew. Appreciate the scenario, and hopefully we can refine it to make it quite good. That was Whispers of Treason. The Glittering Caves by Dylan O'Connell Aragorn now passed into the citadel. There, to his dismay, he learned that Aemir had not reached the Hornburg. Nay, he did not come to the rock, said one of the Westfold men. I last saw him gathering men about him and fighting in the mouth of the deep. Gambling was with him and the dwarf, but I could not come to them. Aragorn strode through the inner court and mounted to a high chamber in the tower. There stood the king, dark against the narrow window, looking out upon the vale. What is the news, Aragorn, he said. The deeping wall is taken, my lord, and the defence swept away, but many have escaped hither to the rock. Is Amy here? No, lord. But many of your men retreated into the deep, and some say that Amy was amongst them. In the narrows they may hold back the enemy and cut that comes within the caves. What hope they have, I do not know. More than we. Good provision, it is said, and the air is wholesome there because of the outlets through the fissures in the rock far above. None can force an entrance against determined men. They may hold out long. So the participants for the Glittering Caves are... I, I see you've spotted them this time, Jeremy. I have spotted the participants this time, yes. I um, Unfortunately, I the first time around, I think you might have missed those. I may have. In this scenario, I got really excited about it because this is a fantastically presented scenario. It looks really good. So I went through, I flicked through it, I didn't see any participants, so I went straight to the points match version of it, made everyone write out points matches for, I don't know, about five minutes or so. It was about good. 45 minutes, yeah. 45 minutes, maybe mm -hmm. an hour or so. But anyway, we went through, we, we put together the participants, we looked at the participants, oh no, this is terrible. And then Matt came up and said, Jeremy, do you realize there's participants? And Matt telling me that I do not, it just cut to the bone, because what Matt was saying there, what Matt really meant was, Jeremy, you idiot. You've just wasted the last two hours. 
is entirely accurate, yes. I'm so disappointed. You, did, you, did you not even read the first page? Come on. You've wasted my time. I'm sick of you. David was crestfallen. You should have just seen his face. Yeah, no, they were really disappointed. And look, I was feeling bad about that. And I should have because I really made a mistake there. So Dylan's provided participants and the points match. And I stuffed up and wasted a good three hours of people time. Because Matt's really slow at writing lists. Very slow. Oh, it took me forever. Like just, just the maths yeah. in his head, adding it up two numbers is, for me. is really tough for you, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Oh, simple addition. It's the bane of my existence. <laughs> absolutely. So the good participants are Gimli with Below Profile. Emma, Below Profile. Gambling the Old, Below Profile. 20 Warriors of Rohan, 6 bows, 6 throwing spears, 14 shields. So that means 6 of them have throwing spears and shields, 8 have just shields. Six Royal Guards on foot, Bodyguards Amir, and eight Outriders on foot, or as we like to call them, Outwalkers. So, a lot of bows, a good amount of warriors, and interesting interesting numbers. I'm not sure how Dylan came to these numbers, but I'm always a little bit nervous when I see below profile, below profile, below profile, because it could be good, it could be not so good. Anyway, Evil has Dunlin Chieftain. Six Dunlandings, two with two-handed weapon, two with shields, and two with bows. Ten Wildmen. Five of these have two-handed weapon, and five are regular. This is good because it's the participants for the Helm's Deep scenario I love so much. So I don't mind these, this one. Oh, good to say. Yeah. And then we have three Urukai Captains. One of these Urukai Captains has heavy armor and a shield. Two have heavy armor and two-handed weapons. So interesting choice there. Two-handed weapons going. Ten Berserkers. That's a lot of Berserkers. 20 Warriors, 10 Shield, 10 Pikes. You've ended up with 10 Berserkers, 10 Shieldmen, 10 Pikemen. And then four Scouts of Bow for some reason. Yeah, that's a bit of a strange one. We we first thought that they must have meant crossbows, but no, Scouts with Bows. Okay. I would prefer them to do crossbows because that would have fitted in with the rest of the force. But okay, Scouts of Bows, that's what they are. The layout is... A scenario is played on a 30-inch long by 30-inch wide board. The deeping wall has been breached, however most of it still stands, with four ladders on the outermost side and stairs on the inner side. The top of the wall is being held by both the Rohirrim. Both the Rohirrim. Interesting. Most of the ground above it is covered in small bits of rubble and dead warriors, which shouldn't affect the movement of models. There is a 12-inch gap between the glittering cave's entrance and the wall, then an 8-inch gap between the entrance of the caves where the women and children of Rohan are being protected. Now, Dylan's provided an excellent map here. So he's got the, the Glittering Caves entrance with a gap of 8 inches. Then he's got a blue area where the Rohan heroes and 10 warriors deploy. So the rest of them deploy behind the caves. Then the walls and then evil deployment there. So it's, it's well thought out. And he's even got a picture, which I, I think is fantastic. The picture shows he's used the Helm's Deep and he's fitted that in there. He's got some rocks for his Glittering Caves. It's really, really well thought out deployment. Looks yeah, that, that that's probably the best one we've seen. The best layout, both in terms of the actual little map and a given picture of how he did it himself. So, perfect. And I love that. It's just so simple. Took a picture of his own layout. And that, that helps us so much because we get immediately the idea of what's going on there and it makes a lot of sense. So, for the starting positions, all good models are to be deployed first. Up to six warriors may be deployed on top of the ball. So, both six warriors... All good heroes and 10 warriors, royal guard or regular, must be deployed in the gap between the wall and the caves. The remainder of the good models are to be deployed inside the entrance to the caves as a last line of defense. In brackets, though they may move forward freely once the battle begins. So 
they're sort of a last line of defense. They're sort of just the main force that's going to They're just the people that are a bit slow to get to the Urukai <laughs> on the walls, basically. Evil models, on the other hand, may be deployed anywhere in the 10 inches behind the deeping wall. Which is not a lot of space. They're basically... And there's only one gap for them to go to and the ladders, so they're all going to be wedged behind that wall. Yep, all in one big clump. The objectives for this scenario. The evil player must get eight models, heroes counters two, into the glittering cave's entrance and through a further ten inches to where the women and children are being held, or kill both Gimli and Aomer. So I can see a real flaw to this scenario already, and this is, you've got Gimli in the scenario. For something to count as two when Gimli's present, I just don't think would stand. So the fact that the the evil player gets eight models, heroes count as two, Gimli's not going to stand for that. Still only counts as one. It still only counts as one! I've just got nothing to say to that one. (laughs) If the good player holds off the evil player for 10 turns or reduces the evil player to 25%, they are victorious. So there are a couple of different uh, options here for the two armies, but I I guess we'll see in a second uh, what the real options are in this scenario. There's not many. Um, We'll go on to the special rules. Scattered from the blast, evil heroes may not spend might to call heroic moves or marches. That's a that's a pretty tough one. That's a tough one for the evil side to handle because it basically means they're going to be moving second for the first half of the game, really. That's At so least. tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's I'm not sure what what to be gained from that. They don't have really any move to march. Like there's no space for them to go. Yeah. So unless the good player's an idiot and just leaves a hole for them to run through, they're not going to be able to take advantage of that. And the moves it just denies them the ability to get priority ever, basically. So that's a tricky one. The second special rule, protect the wall. Any model, good or evil, receives a plus one to their shoot value. So, for instance, four plus down to three plus when shooting down from the wall. Additionally, they may re-roll in the way test. I don't mind this. No, it gives you a reason to stay up on the wall because, honestly, I wouldn't bother if... Yeah, otherwise there's no point to be up there, really. Yeah, or or you put your shield guys up there because your bowmen can't shield. So it gives you a reason to put them up there and then when the Yurikai come up the ladders, you're defending with bowmen instead of shieldmen. So... I don't mind this. No surrender. Desperate to protect the women and children of Rohan, all Rohan and Gimli never need to take courage tests. Mm. So yeah, the, the autos. The autos yep. begin. Which, look, it makes sense. Once again, where are they going to run? No mercy. Fueled by their hatred for Rohan, all wild men and Dunlending warriors are considered to be in range of a banner if within three inches of their chieftain. Love it. That Gives the chieftain some values. Yep. 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 Really makes their attacks and, good. I like this stuff. And they don't have a banner otherwise, so yeah. perfect. And three inches is a good number, so it's not the whole battlefield, although it's probably the whole gap. Pretty much, yeah. For the glory of Rohan, though they know not what lies ahead, the Rohirrim are determined to protect their kin and are fueled by the thought of victory. Keep track of every evil model killed in combat. Once five models have been killed, all Rohan gain plus one fight. Plus one fight! Uh, yuck. Once ten models are slain, all Rohan gain plus one strength. Okay. Once twenty are slain, all Rohan are considered to have a five plus fate save. I think at one point it should say once like twenty five been slain or thirty been slain or something, all Rohan models become Aragorn the king and just do what they want. And have infinite wounds and infinite attacks and just automatically slay everything that they touch. These are huge. These bonuses are so big across the board in a 
and a gap that the evil side has to break through, they're, they're just massive. They're so big. Yeah, there's not much more to be said about that one, really. Now, this is really interesting. We've got a scenario note here that says, this scenario can be played as part of the Two Towers campaign to be played between scenario 15 in the Shadow of the Hornburg and scenario 16, Thaden rides out. Alternatively, you may begin scenario 16 after turn 8 of this mission, replacing Aimer and Gimli with two captains uh, armed with different equipment, and these captains don't count towards the uh, objective. But, yeah, yeah, I, I really like that he's written this into the campaign in the Two Towers book. It's fantastic. Love it. Only person who did this fantastic idea to, to increase the campaign books. My dream one time is to have us, basically as a community, make our own source books and flesh them out and that sort of stuff. And this is the step in the right direction to be able to put in those filler scenarios. I know in The Hobbit, there's some I really want to do, you know, when the Rivendell Knights go and attack the uh, Hunter Oh, Orcs. yeah, that'd be a good and one. And it's not in the book. That would mm. be a fantastic, like a, a scenario 3A type thing. And I think if, if we got through and published these, that would be fantastic. I feel like there's a lot you could actually add to those books. A lot of different scenarios, little mini encounters that could occur. Yeah, and I think throughout almost all the books, there's little mini encounters. Yeah. Although they did a fantastic job in the Fellowship of the Ring, the, mm. the original one, filling Pretty out much those gaps. Everything, yeah, yeah, not much left there, but the rest of them you could. So we've also got here an option for a points match. On the good side, 800 points must include Gamling, Aemir, and Gimli. Remaining points can be spent on unnamed heroes, Warriors of Rohan, Outriders, Royal Guard, but no horses. On the evil side, 1,150. So that's a 350-point advantage for evil. Must include the Dunlending Chieftain with a full warband of either Wildmen or Dunlending Warriors. Obviously, to get that banner effect, it's nice. May include unnamed Urukai Captains, Dunlending Chieftains, Urukai Shamans, Scouts, Warriors, Berserkers, Ferals, Wildmen, and Dunlendings. Note the special rule, No Mercy, only applies to that one Dunlending Chieftain. So it looks like the points match doesn't include the below profiles for Amy Gimli and Gamling, so they've adjusted those in the points. It's a lot of models. It's a huge amount of models, and I'm not sure it fits on the 30-inch the by 30-inch board. That's what we found out after spending the seven hours trying to make the, the lists for this. Yeah, yeah, we, we gradually were getting more and more models out of Jeremy's cases, and we just thought this this is going to be a lot of models on this tiny little board, and... Didn't, it wasn't going to work out. Luckily, we didn't have to do that anyway, but yeah, it, it was a bit much. Probably need to lower those points. Yeah, once I start worrying that I'm going to run out of models, you know it's a lot of models. So we come finally to the alternate profiles. We start with Aemir, Defender of Helm's Deep. For Rohan, for the Hornburg, all Rohan models get plus one attack when not shielding and are considered to be in range of a banner when within six inches of Aemir. Yowza. Mm. On top of that, that's not even all. He also has plus one shoot, so he's hitting on a hitting on a three plus. He has a shield with defense seven. He's got three attacks, three wounds, courage six, and three might, two will, two fate. So he's a little bit of a combination of the uh, Knight of the Pelennor versus the Marshal of Riddermark. But that rule, holy moly. He's also got throwing spears, so he, he makes use of that 3-plus shoot Yeah, value. so when he charges in, and you're going to have priority pretty much every turn because of the, the no heroics to the evil side rule, that's massive. 1-plus attack. Attack is the most important stat in the game. It is. It, it, yes. It's the most powerful stat in the game. To give out 1-plus attack to everyone, and then you can combine that with a banner is just... Massive. So they have no, three attacks. Yeah. yeah, three attacks to win the fight and two strikes. 
yeah. for every row here. One or the other is incredibly powerful. Both is is ridiculous. You've got Rohan models that are basically throwing the equivalent of three attacks straight out there. And we should point out this effect does count on Aimer himself. Rules as written. Brings Nasty. him up to four attacks, a banner reroll. Oh, and geez. fight five, yeah, fight. which is enough for, for almost everything. And he goes up to fight six once you kill five models, strength five once you kill ten, five plus saves once you kill twenty. It, it's just... It's the strongest model for Rohan by a long stretch. It's pretty big. Yeah. So we go to Gambling the Old. He also benefits from AMS uh, for Rohan for the Hornberg special rule. He has exactly the same profile except three might, two will, and three fate, which I think is a little bit different to his usual, isn't it? Perhaps two one one. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a got a bit more of a buffer stat. I don't mind this one. It's a little bit of a buff, not mm. huge. Oh, also fight five instead of fight four. Yeah, that makes a difference. Yeah. But then he's also got the one plus attack from from Aemir and in range of a yeah, banner and then increasing stats. And yeah. increase the stats later on. Yeah. And finally, Gimli, which is also a big buff Gimli. Uh, he has plus one shoot value as well. He's got strength five, defense nine because he's carrying a shield. He's got just the three attacks instead of his old special rule with the two attacks plus one to wound or three attacks. He has three wounds, courage six. Three might, two will, gets a bonus fate point, because why not? Yikes. <laughs> and then when he suffers a wound, because he's got the helm of the House of Aeol, he rolls a d6. On a roll of a six, the wound is ignored. If the test is failed, he may still make use of his fate points as normal. So a little bit of a bonus there. Free fury save. Yeah. Once again, compared to the aimer, it's not a massive bump, but strength five, defense nine, the three attacks when not using your two-handed, all pretty powerful. I mean... And you're being asked to kill this guy as one of your win conditions. It's just never going to happen. You don't have the stuff to. Defense 9 means that as a strength 4 army, you're really not going to get through him. So already this is looking like one where the evil side is not going to have much of a chance to break through the good side. The good side could probably have, I don't know, a third of the models there and still have a good chance with all these rules. So I played against this one with David. I was lucky enough to get the long straw and David drew the short one and I managed to play as Rohan and the game involved walking into the bottleneck and slaying Urukai left, right and centre and by the 10th turn I had actually wiped the Urukai out and the, and the Dunlinning. I've never seen you enjoy a game so much. Ah, it was my favourite game of all time. This is the best scenario, automatic winner. Because you had no stress whatsoever. Nothing David <laughs> could do. Nothing David... Now, you're normally a pretty stressful person, and, and the idea of a game really makes you jittery. But in this one, nothing you could do. You could be the most incredible idiot. It didn't matter what to do. <laughs> and you were. But, I was. Yeah. I made stupid moves in this game. I probably should have lost it. But, but David uh, could never do any heroics. It didn't matter. You had yeah. AMR buffing every one of your troops. Yeah. There was no way that David could in my first move, I actually just stood there and just let him come to me. Didn't oh, yeah, I, th I think you forgot to, like, roll some dice in attacks for some of them. You still were winning them. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, so this one this one we had so much hopes for because the, the layout was great. The photos, the, the way the actual scenario has been presented to us is fantastic. Yeah, this PDF format with a the nice little um, Middle Earth map in the background, so as, as the background yeah, sort of sheet. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's really cool. There's a nice little picture here. Which I'm not sure what it's from. It might be a might be an official illustration of some sort, but... Uh, a picture of the glittering caves with what looks like Gimli in the foreground. Yeah, I, so I really like that That's just a really nice well. touch, yeah. There's so many good touches there, but I'm not, like, if Dylan played this scenario, I'm not sure he's realised 
how easy it is for the Rohan to win. And, and I don't see how we can avoid that with all these special rules. Maybe they haven't come across as he intended. Maybe they don't. Yeah, I feel like, you know, if there's if there's one of the scenarios where we may have stuffed something up and not read something right, it's probably this one. Yeah, so, but we've read over it a few times, and yeah. I, can't, I can't find where we've gone wrong. So maybe we have, but the scenario just... It wasn't really a game. It was it was a display thing. It was the one where you say, okay, new player who's never played before, take the good side. Look at all this stuff you can do. Isn't it cool? Oh, wow, that's fine. You're killing lots of Urukai. So I think if this one were to work as intended, you just need to massively reduce the Rohirrim participants. I think, I think so, there's yes. far too many, yeah. I would, I would reduce them by a significant number and get rid of all those special rules yeah. and the extra counting and things like that because I think yeah. you've got the basis for a really good scenario. Mm. I actually don't even mind the plus one fight, plus one strength once you kill a fair few. If you've only got a very small number of models, and if they don't all have two attacks with a banner reroll. Yep. That's yeah, just getting crazy. Start too powerful. Yeah. yeah, no, I can see that. So, yeah, it's just a combination of all the things together. That was Glittering Caves by Dylan O'Connell. The wolves are hungry. A pack of wild wags has sniffed out Aomer and his riders as they take a rest from a patrol through the Riddermark. These wags haven't had a proper meal in a while, and their hunger has brought them into a frenzy. The relentlessness of their steeds alerts the horse lords of the presence of the wolves, and as the pack moves closer, Aomer rallies his men to take down the wag chieftain. So we have an, another scenario here. We're on to our next one, and this one is by Sebastian. Mm, definitely. And so this one, I first thing I notice about it is the presentation is fantastic. It looks like a page straight out of one of the new books, doesn't it? Desolation of Smile. To yeah. Be yes, it looks like they've they've just taken it and used that, and it's, it looks fantastic. Yeah. No. So I was very impressed with this. There was one of the scenarios in a White Dwarf. Well, not too recently now, where basically it got edited out of one of the books and they just reprinted it in the scenario. And I feel like this scenario, the presentation, looks like one of those ones where they just cut it directly out of the book in the editing and then reproduced it. So well done, Sebastian, for that. We got excited about this, didn't we? we this is one of the first ones we saw. One of the first ones we got and we were, we were super pumped to play it, but we yeah, didn't play it, it until... It, just, it was appealing. Go on, Matt. What are the participants? Who are the participants? Okay, on the good side, there is Aemer, Marshal of the Riddermark on foot with shield and 12 Warriors of Rohan, 4 with bow, 4 with shield, 4 with throwing weapon and shield. In addition, there are 10 horses without riders. Now, I'm assuming those throwing weapons are throwing spears, of course. Yep, let's yep. assume that. Yeah. And 10 horses without riders. I wonder if that will come into account oh, at I all. think it will, but <laughs> what... what? F- this is, once again, I looked at this, and this is my kind of scenario in terms of participants, because you've got a small amount, which means if the scenario is written well, which we hope it is... If it's written well, you're going to get some seriously good fun out of making only 13 models plus 10 riderless horses. Now, we ended up using your, uh, Kylie, your Dol Amaroth horses because your riders could be pulled off for transport. Um, I think if I did play this scenario again, if I wanted to, I would probably model up some Rohan-esque horses without that because I think there's a couple scenarios that had riderless horses in there and it's a good Mm. idea. Okay, so on the evil side participants, we have a wild wag chieftain and six wild wags. And just from reading that, I think I already know uh, a little bit about how this scenario is going to work. Yeah, and I love the wag chieftain model, but 
what I love even more is I've converted a Wag Chieftain model to have a head of one of the Felwags. So it's a Felwag Chieftain. And I really do like the box of Felwags. So I think for this scenario, just to be able to use your Wild Wag Chieftain model, your box of Felwags, grab the spare head from one of the Hunter Orc packs, make it a real nice wolf hunting pack. You've got some good looking models on the board already. Really nice choice of models. And something different. Like I think this is the only scenario we had that had Wag ride, uh, Wags in there. Sorry. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so moving on to the layout. This scenario takes place across the plains of Rohan. It is a large open area with the occasional rocky outcrop or low shrubbery. Shrubbery. Oh, great word. There are a few hills scattered across the landscape. That's unfortunate for Jeremy. He's not a fan of hills. In the center of the board is the camp of the Ayoret, consisting of a campfire and a few tents. The camp is set up in a circle with a six-inch diameter, and the board itself is four foot by four foot. They've sort of said that backwards, but I really like the way that they've expressed how this uh, layout is going to occur. We cheated a little bit on the layout, and I put some forests in there as well, because it seemed like a pretty generic layout overall. So it's really nothing fancy, just some terrain. The main thing is have the camp in the middle with yeah. a, a basically a six-inch boundary. So if you're going to make a display board for this, you'd probably make a camp circle with like ground that's been cleaned up so that they could put some tents on there. I think you need a few tents in the scenario in the camp. And then the fire in the middle. So make your little, make your little camp, freestanding circle with with what is it a radius of six inches would be a good move for this scenario. Diameter, diameter of six inches. Yes, diameter of six inches. Did we not play with a diameter of six? I think we played with a radius of six. I don't think it would have made a difference either way. No, probably wouldn't have. It does seem like the board's quite large then. Well, a diameter of of six. That's six across. You the have to way, pl- as opposed to twelve. So the diameter, you'd have a radius of three inches. That's correct. Yeah. So, and can, we had to put the tent in that and the fire in that plus the 13 foot models. That's a pretty small area for those. It's probably, it's possible, but just. Doable. Um, yeah. But wouldn't be easy. Yep. So we played it, we played it with a six inch diameter, which I don't think made a difference at all in the scenario. The six inch, no, six none radius, whatsoever. Okay. So the starting positions. The good player places Aemir and the Warriors of Rohan anywhere inside of the camp. The horses are placed outside of this perimeter, but no further than three inches away from the edge of the camp. Okay, so that makes a bit more sense with how you can place them. The evil player then deploys his wags on any board edge. Yep. For the objectives, Aemir has encountered plenty of wags before, and he knows that the pack will scatter without their alpha. The good player wins if he manages to kill the wild wag chieftain. Love it. Such a good win condition. It's so simple and so elegant. Yeah. Perfect. That's all you need. The wags are driven by hunger and the prospect of an easy meal. The evil player wins if he manages to slay all of the horses. Yep. So 10 horses to slay. So that's... It seems at the start of the game not too hard to do. Like the horses are... Some of them are running away. Wags can kill horses on a 4+. plus. Get a couple of them onto a horse. It's dead. But the way the game moves is, as there's less horses, it becomes harder and harder to get them because there's more Rohan warriors protecting them. Yeah, and we'll get into that once we finish the... Well, we'll get into that. We'll definitely get into that. Ready finally, else. finally, for objectives, if both of these objectives are achieved in the same turn, the game is a draw. If Aemir is slain, the best result the good player can achieve is a draw. Yeah, and that's a pretty standard condition. It reminds me a lot of the Frodo conditions where yeah. you either auto-lose or you get a change of result if a single valuable model dies. So this one, 
you want you don't want Amy to be picked off by the Wargs because if they get an opportunity to throw the Chieftain and all the Wargs into him, they probably will. But you also need Amy to kill the Warg Chieftain. Because his three mites is the only way you're going to manage to pull that off. It's very difficult for the generic riders to have a crack at that. The biggest problem is to, to try and catch the Warg Chieftain because with a 10-inch move, without doing some marching or without doing some heroic moves, you're in trouble there. So that can be tricky as well. Unless the Warg player is over-aggressive. Yeah. Okay, moving on to the special rules. So we'll start with the Alpha. The Wild Warg Chieftain will call upon more Wargs as the battle continues. Starting from the second turn onwards, at the end of the evil move phase, the Wild Warg Chieftain will howl. On the roll of a 4+, the evil player may then move up to D3 Wargs previously slain in the battle back onto the board from any board edge. The Warg Chieftain may use his might to modify this roll. In addition, the evil force cannot be broken in this scenario. This is super clear, and I really love... The twist to it is that you have to roll a 4 plus first, and then you get D3 reinforcements. Uh, you don't Normally in these scenarios, you just get D3 automatically, but the 4 plus is really good because it's quite swingy. So you'll get three turns in a row where you get reinforcements, and then you'll be wasting them by the end of it because no one's dead. And then you'll get a couple turns where you don't have any reinforcements, and suddenly your wags are looking really light on and can't fight their way through. Yeah, this was a really, really well-written special for this scenario and pretty much makes the scenario. Yeah, it was a good one. Just to add to that, man, so clear. There are no possible questions for that special rule. You know exactly how that's going to work. I love it when they get that right. I know, we can't even fight over it. Like, Matt and I enjoy fighting over rules at times and this one, we're both in agreement, which is... 100%. It's kind of peaceful, isn't it? It's lovely. It's such a change of pace. So lovely, we'll move on to the next one. Because we need a little bit of conflict. Panicked... No, no, I think we stay on that one. <laughs> Panicked steeds. The predators have brought the horses into a panic. For the purposes of this scenario, they will not flee the table for being unridden, but follow the rules below instead. So, the horses do not count towards the amount of good models for the purposes of break tests. They do not need to test for the good force being broken. At the start of each turn, before the player with priority moves his or her models... Each horse has to take a courage test. If it fails this test, it must make a full move under the control of the evil player and may not move any further that turn. If a horse is in a combat with an evil model, it cannot fight and will automatically lose unless another good model that isn't a horse is also involved in the same fight. And finally, the horses cannot be mounted by any model. Okay, so very slight ambiguities there and I'll just go through the, the one that I've got. Uh, firstly, it says if you pass a fail a courage test with the horses, they're controlled by the evil player. They move full move under the evil player. So we decided, obviously, you do a normal move there, following all the normal moves for it, assuming it's it's still a good model, so it can still move through good control zones. We did as long yeah. as it can fit through. The other thing is, we said if it passed its courage test, it was fully controlled by the good player because it's listing the good participants. So we're assuming that. It's yeah. not in, like everyone went absolute technical rider sort of thing. It's it's not quite there, but I'm pretty sure that was the intention there. And that's how we played it. Yeah. Uh, what was the other one? The what was the last one again, Matt? Uh, they cannot be mounted. No, the one before that. If a horse is in combat with an evil model, it cannot fight and will automatically lose unless another good model that isn't a horse is also involved in yeah. the same fight. The, the, the horse profiles normally have zero attacks. Is that right? 
Correct. So yeah. the the assumption there is that the basically you pretty much ignore the horse, but it can be struck at if if you lose the fight. So that's yeah. how we played that one. In much the same way, I think, as striking at a door. Yep. Yes. Or is a paralyzed model as well? You do that. Yeah. Yep. So you just don't roll any dice for them, but yeah, they're considered part of the combat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, yeah. Oh, that that's pretty clear about that. I don't see any issue with that. So the way this one works is you've got the the good models pretty close together at the start. They are, the good models, the foot models are going to try and encircle the horses as much as possible to stop them running away. But some horses have managed to escape because they can fit through a horse size gap and just run towards the wags and to certain doom. So the wags are essentially waiting to catch horses. But the Rohan has great firepower with some throwing weapons and shooting, so they can take out the Wags pretty easily, but then the Wags come back. So it's all about catching the Wag Chieftain. Now, if you're a canny player like I am, you tend to be very conservative with the Wag Chieftain. So I thought immediately, okay, this scenario is not going to work because I'm just going to go hide the Wag Chieftain and then easily win it. And I started off, I killed quite a bit of horses early on, but what we found is then I couldn't get the horses without some serious work because there was half a dozen left and those 13 Rohan foot models could easily encircle them. Yeah, and what we what I found out too is after about the third or fourth turn, I realized Jeremy's not going to commit the Walk Chieftain. It's on the initiative on the Rohan player to make a go at the, the Walk Chieftain and actually try and put pressure on him. So unfortunately, I took a bit longer than... I probably should have to realize this, but once I worked it out, you have to sort of corral the war chieftain into a corner of the board and then when the time is right, run at him with everything you've got and try and take him out. And this led to a really interesting point in our game. What you do with the horses is take the courage test before priority. So the horses, you know if they're going to act with you or against you. So when the good side gets priority, it knows which horses are going to go wild so what you were doing, Kylie, which I thought was really clever, was using the good horses to corral the evil horses, essentially, and mean they couldn't run. So you basically trap them and it wastes their whole movement not moving. And you can you can set that up. So what you, when you started to turn the tide, you're actually having like two Rohan warriors and two horses running together, charging at the Wag Chieftain, because the horses, one of them would pass, one of them wouldn't. And you end up setting this formation that would slowly move towards me. And occasionally a horse would bolt and the wags would grab on it. It was just this fantastic one. And we had some seriously nail-biting moves where the wag chieftain had to win a roll-off to escape the AMR. There was one point in the game where the wag chieftain was sort of cornered between a couple of trees, a tent, about four or five Rohan warriors and a couple of horses. And AMR and a couple of his mates were coming in around the corner. And the wag chieftain had no friends. He was alone. He was trapped. He was cornered. He had to fight his way out. And right when he needed to, Jeremy rolled for his reinforcements, got all three wargs he needed to, and they all ran on and just basically bodyguarded the, the war chieftain. The Rohan went, oh crap, and they all ran into combat. And there was this big brawl to try and kill the war chieftain. I managed to chip one wound off him, but alas, I lost one too many Rohan, and the war chieftain managed to zip out around a convenient corner. So such a fantastic moment, like this cornered warg chieftain howled, and all his friends just came in and joined the fight, and then he managed to escape. And then he, the Wags basically, to, to end the game, it was very close. Everyone was in one area, and there was maybe one horse left, and I had to fight my way through a circle of Rohan. So all the Wags ran in and engaged a warrior of Rohan and the horse at the same time whenever they could. So the hope that I, I won a fight against the odds and then was able to strike at the horse. 
and I managed to finally pull it off. And then once the Wild Chief escaped that first one, he was just a machine. He just took out yeah. Rohan Warriors one a turn, basically. So I was putting some serious pressure on the Rohan. It also didn't help that the one turn I had an opportunity to go at the Wild Chieftain, Amy ran in with two of his mates into one war and was like, all right, we've got this. We're in range. Heroic combat. Amy flusts the heroic combat, loses one of his Rohan Warriors. And is unable to reach the war chieftain. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's probably game. And then suddenly I managed to pass all the rolls with the horses in one turn. Everything managed to, again, surround the war chieftain, get him pinned in a corner. And then the courage just to charge the war chieftain failed. And all four warriors of Rohan who were in range to charge the war chieftain failed their courage test. Yeah, there's some really fantastic twists in the scenario. And there was quite a few moments where you thought, oh, that's game. Wait a sec, we've got another one. Oh, now that's game. Oh, no, no. What if I did this? And what I loved about the scenario was that the whole game, there was really interesting choices for both players. And you, you really had to decide what you do with your might because you had a very limited supply of might. You had three points on the good three, side. Three, and you generally used two trying to catch the two war Two for chief marches then. you used. So we had one for the heroic moves, basically, or heroic combats. There was a heroic march, a heroic combat, and a heroic move. Yep. The one that I needed to go off was a heroic combat, and yeah. unfortunately, that was the one that failed. And you probably would have got me at that point. You probably would have got me if I didn't howl and get my reinforcements. And then there's a few times when I was. Some of those horses were really tough to munch and eat with the wags. So there was some that I, I thought well, I was. The War Chief didn't even fail to kill a single horse by himself at one point. Yeah, so there was some times where I thought, oh no, I've botched this and the horse will get away. Because once the horse runs and gets saved, you're in a bit of trouble. But oh, look, it was just. It was so well designed and so elegant that I really enjoyed it. And what I like the most about it is the investment in models is just tiny for the for the fun you get out of this scenario. This is a really engaging scenario. I agree. I think this is one of those scenarios that we have a little thing in our group. If if a scenario comes down to a single dice roll, it generally means it's been a really good scenario because both players have played so well up to a point where you need that one 50-50 roll or that, that 25-75% chance to swing in one person's favour and win the game. And it felt like that in this scenario, the one roll off to get the heroic move, the one roll off to get the heroic combat or the, the terror chest to charge of war chieftain. And all those little key moments is what makes the scenario. Yeah. And the one roll off happened a lot. So there was a lot of times you look, oh, this is the role for the game. And it just happened over and over again. And it was just... Which is, yeah, again, what yeah. makes a really good scenario is when you can have multiple of those moments and still make it interesting. Mm. So this one, like, very happy with this one. And I, I, I think this is well worth a try for most people because the participants are very accessible. The, the board itself, simple, but just works. And one other thing I like about the scenario is it uses the whole board. Like we were moving the whole four foot by four foot board. The horses were going some directions. The wagons were going some directions. You really got value for your space. Most definitely. I think we, at one point, there was at least one model on every single tile on that board. And that's saying something. So this one I'm looking forward to playing again. Matt, we're going to have to get you to play yeah, it as unfortunately well. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to play this one, but it's certainly the one I think I'm most looking forward to getting a go at. So, yeah. yeah. So thanks for that, Sebastian. That was The Wolves Are Hungry. The Banishment of Aemir by Henry 
The good participants in this scenario are Aemir Marshall of the Riddermark, two Rohan warriors, one Rohan outrider, and Eowyn. So these ones are all on foot. It's a very small amount of good participants. So this piqued my interest straight away. You've got Aemir, two Rohan warriors, one outrider, and Eowyn. Then the evil participants, you've got Grima Wormtongue, two royal guards of spears, so throwing spears, six ruffians, two of them have whips, and one Rohan captain. So good models on the evil side again, once again, piqued my interest. Special rules. Grima is allowed to be taken without Saruman for this scenario. Well, he's in the participants, so that makes sense. The royal guards will be treated as evil models for the purposes of this scenario. Ooh, nasty. Eowyn is reluctant to shed blood in the halls of the Golden King, and so can fight normally, but cannot strike blows. She counts as unarmed for this scenario. So, counts as unarmed and cannot strike blows. So, it sounds to me like she's getting negative to her fight value and cannot strike blows on that one, because she's reluctant to shed blood. Yep, fair enough. The good side can charge Grima as if he were an enemy model. After round two, each player rolls a d3. That is the number of either Rohan warriors for the good side or royal guards for the evil side that spill onto the hall at the sound of battle. Evil pluses one to their roll, so adds one to their roll. The good side places their models at the doorway, the evil at either left or right-hand side of the doors behind the throne. So you've got each player gets a d3 after round two. Is it every turn? Is it is that a turn? I'm not sure. Maybe it's only a D3 in total. Who knows? Objectives. The good player wins if Aemir can slay Grima and get either Eowyn or Aemir in base contact with Thaden for at least one whole turn without being charged. The evil side wins if they can kill knock unconscious Aemir. And Henry's provided a map of deployment. It's on a 16-inch by 24-inch board. He's put uh, spots for all the participants Except, unfortunately, he seems to have missed out on the Royal Guard Captain. So, uh, sorry, not the Royal Guard Captain, the, the Rohan Captain. So, we don't actually know where that model goes. So, we did our best to set this up as we could. What I thought initially was the layout looks like Henry's thought about it. He's put every model in the right spot. So, he's clearly put some thought into this. Um, I like the participants, although I'm not sure that AML was at this particular event where where Thaden's... Um, where Theoden's being relieved. I think it was more Gandalf, but it was a good idea. But there's a bit of ambiguities in the rules which threw us off a bit. So, Matt, you played this scenario with David. Can you take us through what happened? Okay, so in the first time that we played it, it was over very, very quickly. We simply had Aemert and Eowyn charge in. The other three good heroes around there tie up the evil heroes. Grima tried to get away. Uh... I think it was Eowyn called her at combat the first time around. She moves into contact with Theoden. Eomer charges uh, Grima. Grima dies. Eowyn then just stays in contact with Theoden the next turn. There's still enough might around for them to call a heroic move the next turn. And it's essentially an automatic win. There wasn't a lot that the evil side could do there. Now, we did assume that good has priority on the first turn, which is par for the course with most scenarios. Not assuming that, it still probably wouldn't have made a huge difference. So, yeah. so what happens is Aemir ends up in contact with a single, was a royal guard or single wildman or something like that? Ruffian. Ruffian, yeah. Single ruffian. Sorry, I didn't read out. Yes, I did read out the ruffian. So he ends up in combat with a single ruffian. He calls a heroic combat and Aemir calls one in the same phase, but you do Aemir's first. Aemir kills the ruffian quite comfortably usually. If he doesn't, you spend a bit of might. He goes and enters Aemir's combat against Grima. 
He kills Grima, which is one of the objective conditions. You've got to kill Grima. And then Eowyn, the, her heroic combat activates, and she gets to move again. Aemir doesn't because he's already benefited from a heroic combat. But she moves and then cannons into Theoden, which means that he can she can spend the whole of the next turn in contact with it, which is the other win condition. So it was, yeah, w- without modifications, just as written, it was pretty much an auto win. And the the question came down to then was, okay, could the Rohan captain do something? So our next stage was to put the Rohan captain basically in the way of this from happening. And that gave a better game. Yeah, so we placed the Rohan captain on the opposite side of the throne to Grima, as the layout showed. And yeah, it, it did at least allow a few turns for the evil side to sort of get into it, to, to get into the thick of the fighting. The captain was able to block off any path to Grima, so able to stop. And then once Grima could actually get away from Aemer and Eowyn, it, it made it a lot more interesting game, because even though more good and more evil were coming on, we actually thought that that was every turn. Looking at the rules here again... I think Jeremy's probably right. I think we were only meant to roll D3 for Rohan Warriors once and D3 for Royal Guard once. Yeah, and that makes sense. The evil gets one to their roll. So the evil gets either two or three models and more likely to get three. And the good side gets one, two or three extra models. And that's a reasonable amount to add to the scenario because the problem you guys had was the longer it went on, the more it escalated. So I, I think that you might have played that wrong. But... I think leaving out the Rohan captain is a bit of a worry as well. So my thoughts on this scenario was that it had a lot of potential. It it looked good. The The board side was probably right for it. It could have been a really fun mini game. And what I really liked about it is you could actually model up a board for this one and have the whole, as you say, display board for your army and be able to play on a scenario on it. So I love the idea of it. Um, I think AME was almost shoehorned into it because I felt thought it would be better with someone like Gandalf and the three hunters involved. I think Harmer as well would Harmer have made a really good participant. Yeah, yeah, but I just think it, it needs some polish on the actual writing and the, the drafting of it. So I think it's one that I would love Henry to, to actually go out, play some more, write it out again and, and maybe publish it at some point because I think I think this could be a really fantastic scenario and I just... There's, there's, there's some sort of the writings there were a bit tough to get through and we had to make a lot of assumptions and in a scenario competition, making assumptions is not a good thing. Yeah, I mean, any kind of vagueness in rules is always a bit a bit of tricky to get across. But, you know, we had a little bit of fun with a couple of them later on once we tweaked around with it a bit and there were definitely some good ideas there. But o- overall, it just, as it was written and as we had to take it on face value, it, it didn't really work. Yeah. Once we made our changes and assumptions, it actually started playing pretty well. It was a, a reasonably fun scenario. So, so thanks for that, Henry. And hopefully hopefully we get a copy of it, a, a version 2 at some point, because that would be really good to play through. That was Banishment of Aemir. To free a king, the evil of Saruman has corrupted the once mighty King Theoden. With Aemir banished, can Gandalf and his three hunters break Saruman's enchantment before it's too late? The fight against evil is fought on many fronts. You must guide the forces of good to be victors over evil, or Rohan will fall, followed swiftly by Gondor. Ooh, Gandalf and the three hunters. 
Got excited about that because again, off in the three yeah. hundreds haven't been appearing as much as I thought they would in the AMS scenarios. I thought there'd be a heap of scenarios like that, but I think this is the only one. Yeah, I was so. expecting you know when the three hundreds meet AMS for the first time, I was expecting scenarios around that. But yeah, this is the first time we've had so far. Mm, good to see. Good to see. So we'll start with the armies. We have the main game. So there is also a mini game in this scenario, which we'll get to later. But this is the main game. For good, we have Aemir mounted with throwing spears and shield, who has eight riders of Rohan, two sons of Aeol, and two Rohan outriders following him, presumably on horse. Hard to I, say. I think so because they're all mounted. The, yeah. So far, you've got Aemir mounted. It does say, as, as we say, it does say outriders rather than outwalkers. So that's always yeah. good to see. I think this time you've got to give the benefit of the doubt to, to being mounted. It just makes sense that you wouldn't have two generic horsemen with bows on the ground afterwards. So an all-mounted force, a good, good size all-mounted force. You've got basically a warband. So it's and it's a, it's a decent, decent warband, decent composition for it. I like this participants. Now, it doesn't specify which aimer it is, whether it's Marshal of the Ridermark or Knight of the Pelennor. I go for the, the first profile one, not the Pelennor one, because of the time it's set. So that it's basically Gandalf and the three hunters are trying to break the spell. So this is well set well and truly before the Pelennor Fields. Yep, fair enough. So for evil, we have Ugluk, 12 scouts with shields. And it says banner. I'm assuming one of those scouts has a banner. Yeah, just one. No, yep. Not all 12. Oh, good. Uh, they also have a shaman. With four scouts who have shields and bows. That's an interesting decision. Now, Stephen actually sent us a replacement rule there. He actually meant that to be 12 scouts with bows. So quite a substantial amount more scouts with bows. So full warband of those. Shaman and then the 12 scouts with bows. Okay, so after that update, yes. Uh, 24 scouts all up. Yep, yep. Cool. So that's a, a bit better numbers there. Yeah. Okay, so then there is also participants for this mini game. On the good side, we have Gandalf, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. And on... Fantastic participants there. I like this. That's all you need. Yeah, that's what you need. <laughs> and on evil side, we have Grima and 27 ruffians slash wildmen who have a very similar profile, I understand. Yeah, so basically just use generic men. So I don't think there's any problem if you use whatever men you've got in the collection there. If you don't have exactly 27 of them, I did have a combination of 27 wildmen and ruffians and it looks cool. This mini game is fought on a little board that's separate from it representing the throne room. So we had another scenario representing the throne room one and this is a, a different take on it. This, so this scenario is fought over two tables, as Jeremy just mentioned. The first is a 4x4 standard board with roughly 33% trees and rocky outcrops, etc., the second is on a grid area, and it's shown on our PDF here, and it represents the Hall of Edoras's throne room, as we mentioned. The aim of the good side is get to the throne area and free the king in this minigame. Yeah, so you've got two games going simultaneously, and we, we assume it doesn't actually say too clearly, but we assume you play a turn of each, and then you progress to the next one, play a turn of each, so play them at the same time, because there is some bonuses you get for certain events happening in, in the games that carry over to the other ones, so I think you want to play them at the same time. So what we did was we basically played the minigame, a turn of the minigame, a turn of the big game, back to the minigame, back to the big game, and, and so on. Okay, cool. So, I, I love this introduction. The way the smaller game works is... The evil player places his warriors anywhere he likes on the grid, barring the starting position of the good side. So this grid looks to be three by about 15 squares long. Yep, with an extra square for 
Gimli or Legolas or Gandalf or whatever, the hunter. Yeah, it's, sorry, it is 3 by 14 and plus 1 at the back for one of the good models. Yep, with Grima outside the grid in the, on the, next to the throne. So the good side deploy as shown, which is right at the front of the hall at, at the doors. The evil warriors never move, whereas for every kill slash wound in the main game, the good player can nominate a hero to move five squares in any direction except diagonal. So can they move, say, one forward, one to the left, one forward, one to the left? Yeah, yep. So they basically keep going through. So when you, yeah, when you you get a kill in the main game, you get to to activate a hero in this one. So you get an activation. So we just kept track of them for the turn because we didn't want to stop the game halfway through and have to jump back into it. So you basically just say at the end of the first turn or whatever, the the good side has shot three models. So you get three activations. So we'll say, okay, Gandalf will activate. So he'll walk, walk, walk for five squares until basically he doesn't kill the model. So he walks until he doesn't do that. So you pretty much want to activate Aragorn first. And then we, we basically said that you had to choose a different one. You couldn't activate the same one twice in a row. So you couldn't just be Aragorn the whole way through while the others sat at the back. So they, they rotated a fair bit. So is it also when good models die that a, a hero activates? Ooh, uh, is it? For every kill, it might be. Hmm. It might be. We, we, for the longest time, it was only evil models dying, so it didn't make a huge difference in the main game. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay, so, if one of these good heroes in the minigame encounters an enemy, he must roll a d6 and kill the enemy to finish his move or his move ends. Yep. So basically what happens is you move into the square that the enemy has. You say, I'm going to move into this square. You attempt to fight it. So Aragorn throws his three dice of his higher fight value. The Wildman of Dunland throws his one die. The Wildman promptly rolls a six. Aragorn rolls a five and he can't use might. So bang, go Wildman. Although, does Aragorn get his free might? I'm not sure. No, might cannot be used. So he gets in it, the, but he can't use it. In the update we received, it says the heroes have no might, will, or fate. Yep. So, yep. so they, they didn't do that. So what we found was that the Wildman did win their fair share of fights, but... And they did wound, because it's most of the heroes aren't particularly armed, except for Gimli. But the, the good side plows through them pretty pretty comfortably, especially five five shots a turn, basically, if you pick your pick your spots. It's totally random what you pick, so oftentimes you go for a straight line or do a little bit of a, a two-by-two two so that the heroes can move around each other. But not a huge amount of tactics there, and nothing for the evil side to do that. So they'll just sit there and, and wait. So, it says here, once Grima is subdued, only Gandalf can free Theoden using his will. Now, it doesn't say how you subdue Grima. Perhaps that's in the special rules? So, what you do for this is you, you choose how many will points you want to use. For each point, you roll a d6. So, you say, I'm going to use six will. You roll six d6. And if you get a six plus on any of them, the spell is successful and, and Theoden is freed. And you win that scenario. So we thought about this one. We didn't, couldn't see any reason why you wouldn't just throw all your will at the same time. With no might and only the six will, you might only get one activation to do it. So why not just throw all your dice and hope? So how is Grima subdued, though? Like, how does that work? Oh, he stops talking to, to Thad and saying, no, don't trust these people that have just slaughtered all these wild men inside your, your building. So do you have to kill all of the wild men? You have to make a path. So you have to get... Oh, in the, the, the addendum, ah. you have to get within three squares of Grima. Okay, yes. Basically, All so right, got it. if you're in the, the end of it with a clear line, you can just yell at Grima and say, Oi, get away. Get away from Theoden. Get away. 
and then you hope you had enough will to get him away. And if he, resi- if he resists it by you not rolling a six, he just laughs and says, who is this wizard? Get rid of him, you slaughtered wild men. <laughs> All right, so that's the, that's the mini game. Let's get on to the main game. So with the starting positions, the good side set up on the opposite board edge to the side the evil camp is at. Makes sense. The evil side sets up camp within 12 inches of the center line as shown on our little picture here on the PDF. Yep, so it's on one side of the board, basically, close to the middle, but within 12 inches, the evil side sets up. And the evil player can do nothing until he has been charged or shot at. Oh, this is, this is, we need some ominous music here. Anything that takes away a player's choice is a worry. This one, the big concern for me starting and playing as well is that in both the games, the mini game and the big game, the evil player basically doesn't do anything. So in the mini game, the evil player doesn't do anything. Now, obviously, that's not going to activate till something gets killed. So that just stands off there. So that's going to be a standoff. But what it means is the good player gets to pick the moment that they attack. So what happens here is the good player moves the cavalry, circles the camp, makes sure every single model has a nice bow shot on the shaman or the banner or ugluck. And then when, when the good side does not have priority, they choose to shoot. They unload, they kill a bunch of guys, they get a bunch of activations in the minigame, and then the evil tribe basically tries to chase them. So straight away, you've got a position where I think if you wanted to play it like that, if that was the intention, why not just deploy? Yeah, it makes no sense to deploy that far away and just give them a whole bunch of turns to get up there. So literally just say, good side can deploy anywhere on the board, no closer to six inches from an evil model, they get a shot before the first turn. If that's, if that's what the effect you wanted, that would have been a more efficient way of doing it. But it was a bit disheartening because I was the evil player and I literally could not hide my good pieces because the, the cavalry have elevated positions. So Kai was able to move them so they all got a clear shot. And of course, I lost the shaman and I had Uglock down to one wound and I lost a few other guys before I even moved. And that was a bit heartbreaking. Now, I did fight back and I did did really pressure her, but even then, it just, just wasn't quite right. And look, the mini game minigame played... I was actually doing better in the minigame than I was in the, the scenario. My wildmen and, and and ruffians were doing quite good in the minigame. But even then, the, the sheer number of attacks that the good models had and meant that they can, they can go there. I guess if the evil models were able to respond, like if you gave them an activation or gave them a reinforcement to further good models killed or something like that, you might be able to put some pressure on it. But what we found was the good side was really in no rush for the, the throne. They could just kill what they wanted to do, clear a spot, make sure they maximize the path, and then just move Gandalf into position where they threw the will. Now, it's a bit dicey, to the sixth will, to get a six as well. Like, it's you think it's going to be an almost guarantee, but it's not It's not unusual for that to fail. Like it's never I, a guarantee. No, and it's actually a surprisingly high chance that it does fail, and that's a bit of a dilemma as well, because it's one you can't do any controlling overall. So you, you're basically waiting for the minigame to decide the outcome, and it was... It so, felt like we had so very if, little control over it. So if you run out of will, is there any way to finish the game? No, you just Gandalf goes home. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, he did his best. So, yeah. So the objectives here. There are two main objectives here. Wipe out the Uryx and free the king. The game ends once either force in the main game is wiped out. Okay, so the game will still end. Uh, neither force can be broken. Both will fight to the death. Sure. If the king is freed before the main game finishes... Aemer's might store is replenished to signify the kingdom of Rohan being reunited. 
Yeah, so at some point, and what we had was that being a real timing thing. Like, why would we go for it until we wanted to? So basically, in the main game, we waited to AMI was out of might. And so he did some heroic, all this sort of stuff, ran out of might. And then the next kill was an activation for Gandalf to try and get rid of the, the king. Um, unfortunately for Kylie, she failed that. So didn't get the six and then didn't get to replenish AMI's might. And I managed to come back, kill most of them. But then I got wiped out with one or two Rohan left. So the actual game was pretty close. I think what? you might have mentioned this earlier as well. It says, for every failed attempt to free the king, the evil player can either replenish one point of might or bring back a dead warrior. So, but once again, I only have one yeah. attempt. Why would you try more than once? No. Unless there was a rule that said you can only throw two will or you can only throw one. No, it's, it's a bit anticlimactic there. Okay, so then there's a major and minor victories as well. So major victory, the king is freed and the Uruks are wiped out. So both the, both the games won, basically. And a minor one if the king is not freed, which is what happened here, but the Uruks are wiped out. So we end up with minor victory for the, the good side. The evil gets a major victory of Aemir and his force are wiped out, and the king isn't free. So kill all the Rohan, and then keep the king enslaved to Grima. Good ideas, good storyline. The execution needs a little bit of work, and my recommendations are basically give the evil some more choices, let them move a bit more, and maybe put a bit of work into the mini game about how we're going to do that because I just don't think it's quite there. Into I think maybe finding a way to put might back into it would be would be better, and then have have reinforcement bad guys. I think from a uh, scenario design standpoint as well, just how it's written out, probably could use some work. You're constantly finding new things. We like, oh okay, that explains this, and then you go back to the other previously previous part that you've read, and it's sort of seen in a new light. So I think it just needs to be laid out a little bit better. I think like, for instance, the very last sentence says, um, game note, Gandalf must be in one of the final three grid spaces to attempt to free the king. Yeah. Why wasn't that in the section explaining how the mini game? Yeah. Works? So I, I like would that. have split it up two columns, one for each of the games and just go through, explain what happens. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that I like the activation based on a kill. Cause I don't see how that works for a story point of view where you kill a good evil model that's miles and miles away. Suddenly you get a scream and get a move. It's nice that they're interrelated, but I think it almost would be better to have them two going at the same time and just have the turns being the only thing that interacts with it and make it a time limit thing rather than the actual kills interacting between the two games. Yeah, there's definitely a few things here that need to be fixed. But there's some really good ideas. I really like the participants. I really like the setup. The game itself looks fantastic. And if you actually model up a board of the hall, it would look amazing to have the hall with the squares going through and the, the heroes fighting through that. It would be great. Like the Rohan, all cavalry Rohan against the foot camp of uruk is a classic scene. It looks really good. But this one just missed a few tricks that, that made it so that it became a very frustrating for the evil player with no control whatsoever. And I think that that one rule, the one that, that gets me more than anything, is the evil player can do nothing until he's been charged or shot at. Just an unnecessary rule. Unfortunately, worked out that way. I also really like the way that the hall is is uh, set up here. I can imagine modeling it so that the tiles work seamlessly into the actual terrain, but then also work really well for the little mini game there. So that's pretty cool. It looks to me a little bit like there's a hall by foreground. The um, I, I think it's a Saxon hall or something based on a real one. This map looks surprisingly similar to it. So I'm wondering if it's actually designed for that in particular. And if it is, that, that could, I get props for that because that is really cool if it's designed around a piece of existing terrain. I th I'm going to hazard a guess if it is. I think it looks like it could be. Oh, I hope so. We'll have to pick that up then. Yeah, no, it's a good. Ex oh, I think we'll have to pick up the terrain. And yeah, just we're going to have to. Just to check for research purposes. <laughs> 
So look, this scenario looks fantastic. Really good ideas. Just needs a, a substantial amount of work, I think, to, to make it playable, neaten up the actual scenario rules, make them as clear as possible. Then the scenario, make sure the evil player can get to interact. They're already up against it. They've got heroes against them on one board and they've got Rohan against them on the other board. They're, they're in a tough position already. They don't need to have the, the joy of putting down their shaman and then getting him shot out before he's able to light up his first fury. Okay, so that was To Free a King by Stephen Crow. And now we come to the end. We finished all our AMS scenarios. We had a great time playing through these. Thank you so much for all the entrants, all our 10 entrants. And we're going to give away now prizes for the winners. So the prize is going to be a converted Aemir Knight of the Palinor on foot, converted by me for the winner of our scenario competition. Now, I'm going to put through, first of all, our three finalists. These are the three scenarios that we thought were well and truly up there in terms of their thought process, in terms of the game experience we got, and and the overall layout and everything like that. So the ones that we're considering, first of all, is Return to Edoras by Marty Taha. We, this is one that I thought was really going to flop at the start, and it turned out to be a really good scenario with a really clever way of using a tiny board with the bottleneck of the cavalry. So that was a great fun one. The next one is The Wolves Are Hungry, which is a great one with the Wags and the Rohan running around trying to eat some horses. Well, the Wags were eating the horses. The Rohan weren't trying to eat the horses. They were trying to protect the horses, of course, by Sebastian Ratz. So that was a great, fun one. And the other one that we really enjoyed, which is going to become our finalist, is Raff of Wood by Calais and Oni. So out of those three, in what must be third place, we have Drumroll Matt. Marty Taha, honourable mention. Third place. Great scenario. Deployment conditions would have kicked it up a notch a bit, I think, if you got that. In second place, also drumming rolled. Oh, we have got so much technology here. It is amazing. In second place, which means you know the first place. So let's go in first place anyway. The winner of the scenario competition for 2015 is... The Wolves Are Hungry by Sebastian Ratz. Well done. Yay. Fantastic scenario. Well done, Sebastian. So you'll be, we'll get in contact with you, Sebastian, and we'll get you a prize out. And look, I love the, what was it? The Woods Are Hungry? The Wrath of the Woods? Wrath of Wood, yeah. The Wrath of Wood. That was such a fantastic scenario. That's going to get second place, but also a prize as well. So we'll give prizes to both the first and the second places. Well done, fantastic scenarios these two are definitely entering the green dragon scenario hall of fame they are wonderful if you have not played them go on our website try them out you wouldn't have played them go try them out they are great scenarios well done so after such a great success jeremy what do you think about a follow-up i would definitely be doing a follow-up but i've decided to do a follow-up every roughly a six-month cycle so there's going to be a couple normal episodes. Then we're going to announce the, the new scenario competition or new competition in general. And then we'll go from there because what I didn't realize is how much time it took from our end to get through all the scenarios there. And I'm hoping next time we get even more entrants. So I need a bit of a gap between them and then we'll have another scenario. So if you've got ideas for that scenario comp, please send them in to us. But we will announce that probably in a couple episodes time. Remember... 
Traps win games. Thank you for listening to the Green Dragon Podcast. Please be advised that the Green Dragon Podcast is not suitable for children, the elderly, pregnant women, those with a history of heart conditions, or anyone expecting to receive worthwhile advice. You can contact us on the Green Dragon Podcasts at gmail.com. Yes, it has an S at the end. Or our Facebook page, The Green Dragon Podcast. We do not claim ownership of any works based on J.R.R. Tolkien, New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers, or Games Workshop. This podcast is purely for entertainment. The thoughts, as rare as they are, are solely that of our hosts and guests. Farewell, listener, until we meet again.